0: Welcome to the big picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. <laughs> it's showtime, folks. The big picture is on WCPT A20. And now here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath.
1: Hello, everybody. Uh, happy Saturday. We are, um, you know, we are, we are really moving forward with this consequential year right we have Iowa caucuses this week um, there'll be a snowstorm 80 people will show up who knows you know but but somehow it's going to be meaningful um, but let's just let's just talk about where we are in the middle of the night in the middle of the night migrants were you know, who had been put on a bus in Texas were dropped off into the deep freeze of a January snowstorm in Chicago. They were wearing shorts and T-shirts and flip flops. Are you kidding me? Look, it's been 20 years, 20 years since a Republican has won the popular vote for president. Yet in those 20 years, the GOP has captured the Supreme Court and several states, they have used those gains, despite lacking a majority, to impose their radical agenda on the rest of us. And now they're losing their grip and they're desperate. We need to steel ourselves for what's going to be a very ugly year. Look, Republicans are many things, but they're not stupid, you know, and they know that uh, Americans widely rejected them in the last three elections. They see every poll that shows how unpopular their agenda is, from abortion bans to book bans, from unrestricted proliferation of firearms to tax breaks for the wealthiest among us. They see in state after state Americans getting organized and involved in political campaigns from school boards on up, and they're afraid. They know they can't win anymore. And that's why they are championing these efforts to rig the system from voter suppression to gerrymandering to unlimited dark money in politics. But even that can't save them anymore. And, you know, the. Their last chance is to get us to just completely walk away from our own democratic institutions, to lose faith entirely in those institutions. And no one does that evil job better than Donald Trump. This week, he mocked the judiciary by turning, you know, his appearance in court as a litigant into a campaign stunt. But before he could do that, and this is why it's all related, you know, before he could do that, the judge's home had to be swatted. And when republic when reporters talk about this, they say, oh, a bomb threat was called in. But look, saying that something was called in is very passive. So let's use language more carefully and say it like it is. On the morning of the final arguments in Trump's case, someone threatened Judge Engeron and his family. Someone attempted to scare them and abuse our system of protecting people um, uh, to, to make sure that dozens of police cars and... And the bomb squad rushed to his house, sirens blaring. Look, that day, Mr. Trump and his supporters found a way to use both the infrastructure of law enforcement and the courts to undermine both institutions and threaten those who uphold them. Right. This is where they are. And Trump isn't alone. Congressional Republicans, there's a group. They began this new year undermining the very idea of a national legislative body. Look, the Republican majority in the House is too narrow to accomplish anything on its own, too narrow, too divided. They just can't do it on their own, right? But it's rage-haunted members refuse to work with others unless their own grievances are answered by taking the country down a very dark path. And never mind that the majority of Americans don't even want to walk on that road. So instead of working on legislation, they organize hearings that basically just undermine everybody's faith in government. And you know what? It's working for them. The result is that people who don't pay close attention to politics think everybody's to blame because no one will work together. That's dangerous and it's wrong. The blame lies squarely with the destructive GOP. And we better say that out loud. But you know what? Accountability is coming. Look, fairly recently, Republicans controlled Michigan, but, you know, they couldn't govern. Their incompetence led to things like the poisoning of an entire city's water supply. Now, Democrats are in charge and the state is thriving. Now, 16 fake electors, including members of the state's GOP leadership, have been charged with multiple felonies. One has flipped and is now cooperating with prosecutors. And this week, this past week, in bombshell reporting, the Detroit News' Craig Mauger, and he's been a guest on the show a lot, uncovered new evidence that Mr. Trump was directly involved in the scheme. Like I say, accountability is coming. And over in Wisconsin, You know, the nation's most partisan gerrymander looks to be unraveling. The state Supreme Court ordered new maps to be drawn before the next election, and we've seen those maps, uh, the the, the candidates for those maps have now been presented. You know, and meanwhile, uh, the Democratic governor, Tony Evers, has used his veto to block Republican laws aiming to restrict voting rights in the state. Like their counterparts across Lake Michigan, the Wisconsin GOP is, you know, finds itself in a helpless rage. And across the country, the GOP is lashing out. Look, this week, for example, again, after a horrific school shooting in Iowa, in a small town in Iowa, Pat Grassley, the Speaker of the Iowa House of Representatives, and by the way, the grandson of Senator Chuck Grassley, his response to that school shooting was to say, get this, he said, the answer is ridding our classrooms and school libraries of inappropriate material. Seriously? That's his response to a school shooting? More book bans? Oh, and how's that working out? In Florida, the leader in book banning, because of, you know, Ron DeSantis' forever war on who we are, the, 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 there's a school district that banned the dictionary this week. I'm not going to protect anybody from gun violence. These people are crazy and dangerous. But look, this week, this week, the, the, the most awful and most dangerous behavior comes from Texas. And by the way, even more dangerous than sending people, you know, without winter clothes into a snowstorm. This week, Governor Abbott sent the Texas National Guard to block federal agents from accessing the Rio Grande to perform their border patrol functions. The lead field coordinator and the incoming chief of patrol for the Del Rio section of the U.S. Border Patrol, his name's Robert Danley, um, he told the Supreme Court in an emergency filing. And let me just read it to you. Beginning around 8 p.m. Central Time on January 10th, 2024, Border Patrol was denied access to approximately two and a half mile stretch of the border, inclusive of Shelby Park and stretching south. Texas National Guard established fencing and concertina wire and is blocking access um, to Shelby Park and blocking entrances through federally owned and mandate and maintained border barriers with armed soldiers. In total, a combination of armed Texas National Guard personnel and equipment, fencing and concertina wire is blocking border patrol from approximately two and a half miles of access point. He added this on, um, excuse me, he added this on uh, January 11th, 2024, a Department of Defense active duty military service member who was deployed to provide logistical support to the Border Patrol was denied access to the area underneath the port of entry to refuel Border Patrol's generators. What? This is like 1861 at Fort Sumter. The government of the United States now has to contend with a state that is using the, its military to interrupt the con, and, con, and confront the armed forces of our government. As of this moment, it's not clear what Texas intends to do in that zone they have declared off limits to the United States. I mean, what are they planning? They've already put razor wire in the river. Now, of course, we can't protect anybody in the river who's damaged by that razor. Wire, but who knows what they're doing, right? All we know is that the military of the state of Texas has now said the United States government is not allowed to do its job in the state. And they're using and, and by the way, the United States military is being blocked. God forbid this, you know, ends up in a shooting uh, incident. But it is a military challenge. To the United States, from the state of Texas. Um, look, all of these abuses, from the little to the mighty, they're undermining our institutions. They're all attacks, all these attacks on our rights, on our votes. They're all going to accelerate and grow in seriousness throughout this election year. I mean, just keep in mind that we are so very close to winning. We are so very close to creating the world's 1st multiracial and multi-faith democracy where power is really shared by the people. That was never going to be easy. So hold tight to what you love and what you value in our country, because it is going to be an ugly year, an ugly and dangerous year. But you know what? That'll only make the winning much sweeter. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're turning to snowy Iowa to talk about uh, everything that's going on there. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820.
1: Welcome back. And I hope I didn't depress you at the beginning. As I said, it's going to be a very tough and ugly year, but that doesn't mean that uh, we won't make progress. Um, but that year, at least politically, starts in Iowa, and there's nobody better to talk about that with than Laura Bellin, the essential journalist for anybody who wants to understand that state. She is back, and she's of course the, the, you know, the publisher of Bleeding Heartland, which I think I've said about a dozen times in the last year and a half. You guys should read; it's really important to understand that state. Hi, Laura.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's been great to be back.
1: Before we get into politics, I am. Heartbroken to have to ask you what I've asked too many others on this show over the year. Um, How are people coping in Perry with the school shooting? Are the wounded um, recovering? And how's the community coping with the shock and grief?
2: I, I have not been up to parry myself since the tragedy happened. I know that there was a very large turnout for the funeral for Amir Jolif on Thursday. Just absolutely devastating. They still have not gone back to school. The school district is going to be announcing soon when they're going to resume classes at the high school. And I know that some of the injured are still hospitalized. But my understanding is that everyone who was injured is at least in stable condition. But it's just Good. so devastating.
1: I I want to be honest and, I, and being honest means I have to um, check myself on this topic because time and again, the, uh, the Republicans in this country choose guns over the lives of our children. And I struggle with my own reaction. I get, you know, n- nauseous from the disgust, I feel. Um, I mean, didn't the Republicans in your state – Push a measure to eliminate the need to get a permit to carry a gun in 2021, and and correct. Oh my That's god! Correct. Our You're governor
2: signed that into law. The uh, getting rid of concealed carry permits in 2021
1: yeah and i and and you 're going to have to explain this to me, how did Pat Grassley Chuck 's grandson I and mean, the Speaker of your house, how is it possible his answer to gun violence in school is more book bans?
2: Well, this is what I find absolutely incredible is that first of all, the Iowa House Republicans last year passed a bill that would have made it easier to keep firearms. In a locked vehicle on school grounds or on college campuses, that actually didn't get through the Iowa Senate, mainly because the insurance industry lobby threw a fit over it, rather than on a gun safety thing. But um, but the Speaker Pat Grassley, this is the incredible thing: he the Republicans talk about um, mental health and you know resilience and teaching kids resilience, and yet when it comes to books. They have this idea that suddenly, you know, teenagers are going to crumple and some kind of catastrophe is going to happen if they're exposed to a book that describes sex. In many cases, they're upset about books that just exist in the school library. These aren't even books that were assigned reading in any class. But here's what I thought was absolutely Unreal last week that we hear so much from Republican politicians about, well, we need to address mental health. Well, last week our governor published her budget recommendation for the next year, and our state universities, the governing body that oversees Iowa's three state universities, had requested an additional $1 million to spend on mental health initiatives on campus. Nope, she didn't include that in her budget. She didn't include a lot of the funding, the extra funding that they were asking for. She didn't include. So which is it? Are we going to invest in mental health? And by the way, Iowa is near the bottom in terms of access to children's mental health services already.
1: She was too busy giving her favorite staffers a raise.
2: Right. <laughs> I will say thank you for mentioning that. I put for listeners who don't know, I put a lot of work into public records requests and lots of digging to report on the governor uh, giving her own staff huge raises last year. And uh, meanwhile, of course, you know many people in state government have to make do with a two or three percent raise, if that.
1: Yeah, look, it's corrupt, it's dangerous, and it's dis dis. Uh, connected from reality, right? I mean, you're pointing out that the Republicans are like, okay, let's make it possible to have guns at schools, right, but not books. And it's the books that are the ones that are killing people, not the guns. This is insane.
2: It is really insane and uh, we the republicans last year they enacted a lot of really bad school policies one of them was a really wide-ranging book ban on any books that have a visual depiction or description of a sex act so it wasn't using the terminology of obscenity law it did not say sexually explicit it did not say pornography it said only age-appropriate materials are allowed in schools, and age-appropriate does not include anything that has a description or visual depiction of a sex act. And so that led school districts to remove hundreds of books from school libraries, including Pulitzer Prize winners, books that are on the AP literature exam. And so there were a couple of lawsuits challenging aspects of that law, including the book bans. And just before New Year's, a federal court in the Southern District of Iowa enjoined that part of the law. So the state cannot enforce these library book bans, and of course our House Speaker and our Governor and our Attorney General, they're more upset about not being able to enforce a book ban. I mean, it, it really is shocking, and again, um the, the law, I mean, the ruling, it was a very interesting ruling, and, and in fact, it kind of suggested that they could have some kind of a law with an obscenity-type standard that would probably be constitutional. But it said this is just staggeringly broad. That was literally what the ruling said, that the staggeringly broad provision is not compatible with the First Amendment.
1: I... I uh, <clears throat> These people are liars. I'm sorry, I can't be straight about this, and they are frauds because they want to cloak this this prudery in some kind of morality that they co- that they claim to be religious. But you know if you want to ban any anything that mentions an act of sex, I, I, the book of Samuel includes uh the story of the rape of Tamar. I can go on, the, the Bible is filled with sex and violence. Are they banning math? They're liars. Well, here's here's
2: <laughs> what's funny. Edwin, when this bill bill bounced back and forth between the House and the Senate last year, because there were a lot of pieces of it that they were tweaking, and when it was first debated in the Senate, one of the Senate Democrats pointed out that very thing. He started describing some of the sex acts that are in the Bible and said, are you going to remove that from schools? And he pointed out that Iowa law has a longstanding provision that says schools cannot be forced to remove religious texts like the Bible, the Torah, or the Quran, and they also cannot force students to read those texts. So when, they, when the bill bounced back to the Senate the second time, they actually put a little provision in there that said, like, notwithstanding this section of Iowa Code that exempts the Bible, this, you know, age-appropriate material. So they actually wrote an exception into the law banning books that describe sex acts so that the Bible would not be affected by it. And that was mentioned in the federal court order that enjoined the law, that this in some ways, it makes the constitutional problems even worse because the state of Iowa is basically saying that, uh, that the Bible may have some value despite describing sex acts. But all of these other books, including some nonfiction history books, books that even help teach uh, students about how to avoid to uh, sexual abuse. Right. I mean, it's just it's yeah. really stunning.
1: And I just to go full circle. And this is going to protect people from gun violence at schools.
2: Yes, many people... Why was Pat Grassley
1: not laughed out of the state for that?
2: uh, Many people had that reaction last Monday. Monday, so the... January 4th was when the horrible shooting happened at Perry High School, and then January 8th was the opening day of the legislative session, and all of the legislative leaders acknowledged what happened in Perry, but then they, they didn't give a lot of specifics about how we're going to respond, but many people had the same reaction, like, you've got to be kidding me. You're talking about trying to protect children from what you know he described as sexually explicit materials in school, and yet... People were literally just gunned down less than a week ago.
1: It's just such an insult to the memory of the dead. It's just, it's just an appallingly uh, uncivil and stupid thing. And this is where um, a good chunk of America has found itself in thrall of whatever this, this movement is, it's bad news. It's just, and you've gotten your fill of it because I guess it's time to turn this way. Your state has been inundated with their ads because of the caucuses. So I, yes, that, I, what's everything. The, like, even playing on, like word one games on 10, my phone,
2: I get ads yeah, for Nikki Haley. I to so. like,
1: ask about the whole state here on it, like a one to ten scale, where ten is like we are mentally healthy, and one is <laughs> we are all desperately, like you know, ready to check into a, a whatever place we can to get permanent help. Where is the state after months being barraged by this?
2: Well, you know, it's it's been a strange caucus campaign because there's nothing really happening on the democratic side. So, I would right. say that 20 in in some ways, 2016 was even more intense because we had really strong campaigns going on on both sides. I feel like if you're not a Republican, you're not as exposed to it. I mean, certainly you still see the television and the digital ads, but it's not as much in your face. It's just, I feel that the, it's the disconnection from reality part of it that you touched on It's that they're talking about the moral panics related to whatever it is, to transgender issues, whatever they're upset about about today the southern border i mean you would think that iowa was right on the southern border and in fact they say every state's a border state and and the panic that they're instilling and meanwhile we have people going to bed hungry, uh, living in poverty. I mean, we have huge problems in the state of Iowa. We have the second highest cancer rate. We have terrible water quality issues. And yet what's being talked about in the Republican presidential campaign, I see as mostly a huge distraction.
1: Yeah, well, that's their. That's what they do. They distract. Um, and, and the candidates themselves um, – You know, there have been a bunch of debates, but um, it sure looks like the only thing that's happening is that everybody not named Trump is just scratching and kicking and choking each other while he just sort of cruises by.
2: Yeah, it's really the most bizarre campaign that I can ever remember, that anybody can remember. Because first of all, I mean, think about how many political careers have been ended just by somebody being investigated for a crime, let alone indicted, for for 91, 91 counts in four separate indictments. And yet, not only is Trump's career not ended, but his support has increased. And the Des Moines Register's pollster, Ann Seltzer, she's one of the best in the business, and they've been regularly polling, and they have a new poll coming out tonight, so I don't know what it's going to say, but Trump's support has been generally increasing. And they asked in the last poll, they asked people about some of the vile comments that he's made, things about immigrants poisoning the blood of our country or comparing political opponents to vermin. And for a significant segment of Republican voters, those kinds of comments make them more likely to support Trump, not less. So the other candidates are really afraid to take on, you know, like you said, it's almost it is like they're fighting for scraps and they're afraid to anger the base by stating some obvious things about Donald Trump being unfit. But I don't really see any of the other candidates as actually running to try to become president this cycle. I think that they're positioning themselves for 2028 or in the case of Vivek Ramaswamy, they're maybe just hoping to get a job in the next Trump administration or something, but I don't really see Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis as seriously contesting for the nomination right now.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I have so much more to ask you about that. But let me let let me take a minute before I ask just to say like the weather is terrible. What's the turnout going to be like?
2: Oh, yeah, I'm. I will say that I am disappointed. I mean, I mean, Iowans are used to cold weather in January, but this is by far the worst weather we've had for a caucus ever. I mean, it, we've we have ironically, we've had an unseasonably warm winter for most of the winter and not that much snow. But just within the last week, we had two major storm fronts that dumped more than a foot of snow in some parts of Iowa. It's close to two feet of snow. And then we went into this deep freeze, this Arctic blast. So right now, as I'm talking to you, the temperature is about three degrees Fahrenheit. And I think on Monday, when the caucuses are happening, the high temperature might be below zero Fahrenheit. So it's literally dangerous weather to go out in. And it is going to depress turnout quite substantially. And I I was kind of looking forward to seeing what the turnout would be like on the Republican side and how it compared to 2016. But I think there's no question it's going to be way down. And and frankly, people have different opinions about this. But I feel that bad weather helps Donald Trump because his supporters are the most fanatical and the most enthusiastic. And I think that generally it's more exciting to go out to an event if you think that you're going to be on the winning team rather than going out to an event. If your candidate is vying for second place.
1: So what, and low turnout is what, how many people, like what are the numbers? How many people are we talking about?
2: Well, I mean, it's, it should be in the range of over 100,000. I mean, generally speaking, the high point for Iowa caucus turnout on the Democratic side was 240,000 in 2008. That was the year Barack Obama won the caucuses, mm-hmm. obviously. And that was really extraordinary turnout. I mean, Republican caucus turnout tends to be lower, but I think that they were – I mean, I certainly heard estimates of one hundred and fifty to 175,000 people, but I just don't think it'll be – anything on that range because it's, like I said, a lot of people, it's hard to get people to go out on a cold winter night, period, even if it's not that cold, you know, if it's just in the 20s. But right now we're dealing with a lot of road conditions are really bad. There's no way it's not going to be warm enough for any of the snow to melt off. And in some parts of Iowa, I mean, I live in a suburban area, so I think in the urban and suburban counties that I think the roads should be mostly clear by Monday, but who knows in rural Iowa. So I may help Nikki Haley,
1: but you know,
2: I think it may help Nikki Haley. It may help her beat DeSantis. I mean, I don't think that it's going to, um, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's going to be enough to really have her be like a close second to Donald Trump, but,
1: but but who knows? This is what I got to ask you now, having heard those numbers, a hundred thousand voters, 150,000 voters. Like, look, there are 50,000 people in a Chicago ward, for gosh sakes. That's three wards is a big turnout for, right. for this caucus. Like, why should the country care one fig? It's like, you know, it's, it's a tiny number when you think oh, about yeah. the people who are going to vote.
2: Well, and it it is a really small number, and, you know, even when we have relatively high turnout on the Democratic side in the caucuses, it's nothing like what a lot of primary states, because it is so much more difficult to vote in a caucus. I mean, you, you have... You have to go out, you have to be in a specific place at a specific time, and you usually have to be there for more than an hour. I mean, it's a, a yeah, much more time-consuming. So, I mean, that's just generally – that's like an existential argument about the Iowa caucuses that people have been having for decades. Of course, it used to be – we used to have much smaller turnout. I think in 2004, when John Kerry won the caucuses, the Democratic turnout was about 125,000. Yeah. And that, was a, that was a record at the seriously. time. So
1: I just – I don't want to I don't want to dump on Iowa, but I also just think like, you know, um, weird stuff happens. So but, you know, like on the Democratic side last time, Joe Biden didn't win there. He, you know, barely, he waited till he get to big, some big states. And um, right. I just right. I just think that it is uh, a press phenomenon more than a real one. And it is. Um, and, well,
2: you know, it used to be that the Iowa caucuses narrowed the field, and now what's right. happening is that the televised debates are narrowing the field before the Iowa caucus even happens. So yep. the, the political parties are setting criteria for participating in televised debates, and then the candidates who don't make it onto the stage basically have no options because they have no ability to push their campaigns forward. So I think right. the purpose of the Iowa i, I do think that—I mean, I, clearly the Democratic Party is done with having Iowa first, but I think it's very possible that Iowa could lose lose its first place spot on the Republican side as well. I mean, a lot depends if Donald Trump loses the general election. I think people may ask, how helpful is it to the Republican Party to start the process in Iowa?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, whether it's first or f- fifth, I, I, I'm getting, you know, these numbers the point that it just shouldn't matter that much. And, I, you know, I'm sorry about that. I mean, rural America matters and Iowa matters, but 100,000 people is not. Um, oh,
2: I I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy yeah. participating in the Iowa caucuses, but I've never uh, been a sort of like a rah-rah cheerleader, you know, the caucuses are the greatest thing ever. I think I would like to see more competitive contests continuing well beyond the early states and unfortunately, more often than not it's blocked up by Super Tuesday and I don't think that's great for democracy. I mean, of course, yeah, of course yeah. this year if Donald Trump does well on uh, on Monday night, it could basically be over even before new hampshire
1: so we'll have to see well I, you know i mean for republicans now for for republicans he's their incumbent right it's right. a different d- dynamic than ever they they you know are living in this fantasy world where he won the last election oh by the way oh yeah can somebody tell him since he's been elected twice he's not eligible to run again
2: yeah <laughs> I mean, I went to the last Trump rally. I usually just watch these online, but I did attend the last one that he held in person. It was about a 45-minute drive from my house last weekend. And, yeah, the people were standing around during the long, long time when you're waiting for the program to start. And there were people talking about, oh, yeah, they don't think that Biden really won the election. And it's amazing. But I do blame not just Trump because, yeah, he's a liar, but the whole Republican establishment. I mean, they indulge all of his lies and validated them for years, and they wouldn't come, with very few exceptions, like Mitt Romney, that nobody, at least in Iowa, none of the elected officials came out and said Donald Trump lost the election fair and square. I mean, they hemmed and hawed, and then they would say things like Joe Biden is the president or, you know, the Electoral College made its selection, but they never said Trump lost, you know, deal with it. So now we have it's not surprising that a majority of likely Republican caucus goers don't think that Trump really lost the election.
1: Okay, so that brings me back to what you said earlier in talking about the electorate. Um, Two things. One, that there is an there's an electorate and it is the Republican base now that believes vile things about (laughs) um, about other Americans um, about, uh, books, you know, about, about, um, what it means to be in a democracy with people who are different than, than they are. Um, Mm -hmm. and you have party leaders who know they're wrong and who know that the guy in charge who's feeding them this crap is wrong, but they don't have the courage to say it. Mm-hmm. for their own skin history is filled with great tragedy in those circumstances um and i just wonder because you see it playing out right in front of you how we are going to move past this awful moment and take you know the the to, I, I guess to use the bible belt language when shall the eyes of the blind be opened
2: I have no idea. I think we are in a very scary period in American history. And I think we maybe have talked about this on one of my previous appearances on your show. But early in my career, I covered Russian politics when Boris Yeltsin was president and the early Vladimir Putin years in Russia. And I covered the 1995-96 election cycle in Russia, which was when Boris Yeltsin was running for re-election. And he was very mm-hmm. unpopular. And and we, my colleagues and I talked about this a lot. Like, What happens if Yeltsin loses the election and refuses to leave office and tries to use the military to stay in power. And, and what's going to happen? This was only five years after the fall of the Soviet Union, and we worried about it. But I never, ever thought that an American politician would lose an election and would try to stay in office after that, and tens of millions of people would support the effort to do so. So it's really scary. We're, this is so far a field from where I ever thought politics would be in my lifetime. And I feel bad for my kids and their generation that they grew up in this era thinking that somehow this is normal.
1: I feel a little differently. Um, Not about the facts, but my take is that I am, I am um, thrilled for my children that they get to live in a time that matters so much that That for the rest of their lives, they're going to be able to look at themselves, I mean, they're in their 20s, and go, what I did during this crisis helped shape the future for the better.
2: Well, that's a good way of looking at it. I certainly think it's – I tell my kids regularly that they're going to have to – save the country from some of the problem I'm Gen X myself but the baby boomers and Gen X have not left this country in a great situation so that the younger generation I have confidence in in their beliefs and their idealism but uh, I I'm just sad that this is a time when so many people are disconnected from reality and there are there's one major political party that just isn't willing to stand stand up for democracy.
1: We, I, I don't think the the older guys did as badly. They brought us to this point, you know, where we might actually become really a democracy that everybody here, diverse as we are, participates in. We've never been that. I don't think we're more divided, Laura, than we were in the past. In the past. You know, I mean, I'm older than you. I was 10 years old before black Americans could vote freely in a presidential election in the United States. That didn't happen until 1968. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And for most of my life, there were plenty of fields of work that women weren't allowed even to think about being in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, we weren't we were certainly more divided when, you know, across the country, uh, the Pinkertons were shooting folks when they organized labor unions. I mean, we've been divided in America for a long time. And I think we are less divided now. But the forces of that were in charge are th- feeling threatened. And this they were never going to go quietly.
2: hmm. Well, I, I think that's a valid perspective and way of looking at it. I mean, it may be in my years when I was focused on Russian politics. I may have just had too idealistic a view of how politics functioned in the U.S.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, I grew up in Chicago when Richard J. Daly was mayor and it was not, uh, you know, it was not exactly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, this is not you know, isn't is just Republicans. This is, these were Democrats, but you know, so <laughs> you're so right. Second, and there's you know. a reason why we have our primary election in February in Chicago, like you have your caucuses. It means right. that very few people vote, and the votes are controlled. But you know, people whose jobs depend on it or the government wants to show up, show up. It's not a very uh, pro democracy calendar.
2: Yeah, those old political machines. I mean, we know we had a, on the south side of Des Moines, they had something resembling a political machine, but it was never really on the level of Chicago politics, and it doesn't really exist today in the same way.
1: Yeah, well, neither does that old machine in Chicago. But So I, so I think we've made progress, but we've gotten to the point where fundamentally and, – and, you know, I mean, this is the thing that's so shocking. You know that Republicans <laughs> – They've lost they've lost the uh, popular vote for president for 20 years. Yeah. Right. And and, and that and the only time they won it was George W. Bush because of the Gulf War. He actually didn't win the popular vote the first time he ran. That's right. Right. So, it's, so they, they almost have never won. It's been forever since they have regularly won um, a national vote. Yet during that time, they took over the Supreme Court. Right. And they and they pushed an agenda on the country that the country doesn't want. Mm -hmm. And and so we're fighting back because we think, you know what, gee whiz, the consent of the governed is part of what what we think of when we say government is legitimate.
2: Well, Um, and I'll tell you that this speaking of the Supreme Court, this Dobbs issue is not going to go away and it is going to be a big problem for Republicans because. I mean, I talk to a lot of women of all ages, but especially the women who can remember before Roe v. Wade. And they are upset and they are angry and they are not going to forget about it in a year or two years.
1: Right, because the problem isn't a news cycle problem. It's a threat to people's lives. It I really mean, is. And, and people are being hurt by this every day. Oh, absolutely! You don't know this, but the number of people—Illinois is a state where women can get reproductive health services. They can Mm -hmm. get abortions in Illinois, and the number has has gone up. I think it's doubled in Illinois from from people fleeing uh, the states around us so they can get treatment.
2: It's even gone up in Iowa from people fleeing from Missouri. I mean, Iowa. our Republicans passed an abortion ban that right now is blocked and and pending litigation. So at some point, the Iowa Supreme Court will decide. But Minnesota has seen the numbers go up, and and Iowa as well. But you're right. I mean, it, it absolutely turns people's lives upside down, an unplanned pregnancy. And, uh, and if you believe that people should have any ability to make choices. And, again, that's, that's the other disconnect with Republicans is there's so much talk about empowering parents and empowering taxpayers, and, and yet what about just the basic ability to decide the future course of my life? I mean, that doesn't mean anything to them.
1: The only thing that 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 seems to matter at the moment to this party is fealty to one man and every other idea they have is a transaction. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, they used to be for supporting Ukraine against Russia. Not anymore. And Ukraine is now in peril, in peril as Russia is making advances now um, in eastern Ukraine and we can't help them anymore. And this is the Republicans, right? They used. And to, they, I grew up they,
2: under Reagan when, you know, he used to say, if you don't like it, you go back to Russia. I mean, the idea that there would be like a pro-Russia faction in the Republican caucus in Congress is, is remarkable to me.
1: Yeah. And the only way you can understand it is that it's really a pro-Trump caucus and they'll do whatever he asks. Right. And if today it's pro-Russia, tomorrow it's something else. It's it's. It's all it's a lack of core beliefs masquerading as some kind of ethic or morality. But
2: it is it's it's remarkable. The Register, they did a poll a few months ago where they were asking people about their views on abortion. And one thing that I thought was interesting was a lot of people who were very strongly anti-abortion were supporting Trump. Uh, uh, But then there were also people, there are a decent number of rank and file Republicans who think abortion should be legal. And those people, Mm -hmm. many of them were also supporting Trump because they think, though, well, you know, even though he appointed those judges, I mean, he made some comments about sort of half-heartedly criticizing the six-week ban. So, but it was amazing. Everyone, it's like they're looking at him and they're seeing what they want to see in him.
1: Yeah, dangerous. For sure. Um, let's talk about your governor since she signed some of these bills. I, I understand she has a secret Twitter, a secret Twitter, not Twitter, whatever it's called anymore, X account, where she's been well, actually down. critical. What is that story?
2: Edwin- I have to confess, I did not know about her secret account. She's been using it for two years. I didn't know about it until after the New York Times published that story. And then I went in as quickly as I could. I took screenshots of her posts. And then very soon after the story went online, they they took down the account. I, it, well, it was tell everybody that, about
1: the whole story because people yeah, don't so haven't she, read this. So
2: story. our governor has. She has an official Iowa governor account. She also has a political account, Kim Reynolds IA, where she posts a lot of political stuff. But she had in 2021. She created this secret account that just had a few hundred followers, where initially she was mainly using it to post things about Iowa State Cyclone sports and things like that, and not really using it for any political things. But in recent months, she's been uh, sharing more political posts, liking more political posts, and of course, she endorsed Ron DeSantis for president in November, and so she has even um, shared... she, she. Liked a pose that contrasted like the DeSantis family photo around the holidays with Trump's photo of him surrounded by other women, not his children. So, you know, I mean, I thought it was interesting, but she has uh, I mean, I think it's I'm very closely watching what happens with her relationship with the Republican members of the legislature who endorse Trump. We have about 40 who endorsed DeSantis and about 20 who endorsed Trump. And I think that there could be some lingering bad blood between those factions, even after the caucuses are over. So I've certainly heard a lot of dissatisfaction among Republican voters that they don't think that the governor should have endorsed DeSantis. Traditionally, Iowa governors have remained neutral in, before the caucuses. And so I think that was a misstep. I think that she imagined that because because she's popular among Republicans, that she thought she could make a real difference for DeSantis, and it just hasn't materialized.
1: Yeah, coattails are a bit of a thing of the past.
2: I think so. I just I don't know that any Iowa caucus endorsement has really ever been that important. And and certainly this year, when you, as you said, Trump is the de facto incumbent and there's no sign that the majority of the Republican base has never been looking for an alternative to Trump. And that hasn't changed no matter what. And then, of course, DeSantis himself is a flawed candidate in many other ways. But there was nothing. Kim Reynolds was never going to be in a position to really move the needle for DeSantis here.
1: All right. So let me just go back and try and understand the arc of the campaign. You said um, the the Republicans have come to Iowa and said you're a border state and done all the immigration scares they can. Is that has that been for the length of this uh, caucus or is that more now or has that been their main issue the whole time?
2: I think they've talked about that issue. They've really highlighted several issues. Well, certainly the Biden, I mean, bashing Joe Biden is probably their number one issue on everything, right? Blaming him for everything. Only, if you listen to them, the United States is the only country that's had inflation, right? It, as opposed to the reality, which is that every country dealt with inflation after the pandemic. It was actually less bad in the U.S. And we did and a better US job than the, strongest, the rest of them. Right, because yeah. the U.S. has the strongest recovery. But so, so yeah. there's this creation of a, a fantasy world where some how the economy is uniquely terrible in the United States and it's all Joe Biden's fault. So they talk a lot about that. They talk a lot about immigration. Certainly there's a lot of pandering about an animus toward transgender people. That's been a big issue for Republicans, not just in Iowa, but in other states. And so Iowa was part of the wave of states that passed bans on transgender participation in sports, bans on gender-affirming care for children. Uh, We have a school-bathroom bill that's in effect now. And so we have heard quite quite a bit of Republican candidates in Iowa pandering on those issues as well. But as we talked about the last time I was on your show, the school board elections sure didn't go well for the conservative candidates this year. So I think that all of those, all of that moral panic about what's happening in schools has really fallen flat with voters at large.
1: I, it's just crazy. I, are they blaming? I just, I, I, somebody told me that they saw, you know, on Twitter, but I just don't know if it's widespread, that there, that there are folks in Iowa claiming that somehow the deep state has controlled the weather so that this terrible freeze is going to be interfering with your caucus.
2: I think that was just Laura Loomer who said that. I don't, I have not seen any Iowans saying that. I thought that was very funny and I almost wondered when I first saw it, I thought, is that really her account or is that a parody of an account? Because, you know, winter storms, I mean, we do usually get a few big blasts. Every winter and it 's just very the timing is very unfortunate, like I said, it has been cold. I mean it was pretty cold for the two thousand and eight caucus. It was pretty cold for the one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight caucus but to have the combination of this extreme cold and the amount of snow that we 've had we 've been really under on snow, like I said this is then and, yep. and now uh, it just all came at the worst time when the candidates many of the candidates had to cancel events this weekend, and it 's just not safe. I mean, you can be oh. out. It's not. You yeah, could I, be stranded on a road and literally die in this kind of weather.
1: So. No, that's 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 true. But the farmers have to be happy. I mean, blanketing snow on on all that ground has got to be good. For,
2: yes, know. we're way we're we're in the most extended drought in Iowa since the 1950s. So, yeah. that any kind of precipitation is welcome for the farmers. Definitely.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. So, what's it going to be like? Um. Like immediately after everybody packs up and leaves, when the gumness is done. What, what, wow. what, what is, this, and, what has happened?
2: Well, the madness for me is just starting because the Iowa legislature went back to work last week. And so then I, I've, really, I focus more on state government than anything else. And so the Republicans are going to be working on another big tax cut that we can't afford. Uh, The governor is planning an overhaul of the agencies that serve disabled students in Iowa. So that's going to be a big issue. I'm watching. There's a lot of controversy here over the governor refusing federal funds for uh, assistance, food assistance for kids who qualify for free and reduced price school lunch uh, to assist their families over the summer. So, I mean, there's just a lot going on during the legislative session.
1: Ex- wait, explain that one. I mean, I so, know some uh, states are doing it, but I can't understand it.
2: No, there's no logic to it, Edwin. I mean, 15 Republican governors have done this. So this is a program. It, it started during the pandemic. The Biden administration created it. It made it more of a permanent program in 2022. And the idea is that if your child qualifies for free or reduced price school lunch, then during the three summer months, you would get on an EBT card so you could spend the money anywhere. You would get $10 per child per week, so it works out to you know $40 per month per child, which is not- not a lot of money, but for some families, it certainly could make a difference, and there's absolutely no logic to turning this money down. I mean, it only helps, it helps kids, it helps families, it helps local grocery stores, they can spend the money at farmer's markets. I mean, everybody benefits from this program, but the governor came out the Friday before Christmas, her administration announced that was not going to participate in this program, and the pretext she gave was that uh, these these cards don't do anything to address childhood obesity, like as if she's ever done anything to focus on childhood obesity. And I mean, it, there's just like I said, it, it's cruel. It was no benefit to anybody in Iowa at all. So but but it's a, obviously Republican governors got together and decided this was something many of them wanted to do as a group, because I saw Mississippi, Nebraska and a number of other states, they're doing the same thing.
1: Was your state one of the states that saw big increases in ACA enrollment?
2: Uh, We already had, I I haven't seen the numbers for this year. I know that there were some states that did. We had a pretty big increase in Medicaid enrollment during the pandemic. And then after the end of the official federal disaster emergency declaration, we've had a lot of people lose their Medicaid coverage. So I, I actually don't know how many of those were then able to get policies on the exchange.
1: I just, you know, red states across the country reported record signups this year in a bunch of states. I just don't know if Iowa was one of them. Um, Iowa
2: has traditionally actually had a pretty low uninsured rate. I mean, even before Obamacare mm-hmm. was adopted. I mean, I'm not saying that it wasn't a problem for a lot of people, but I remember when I was reporting on that in 2009 and 2010 that I was surprised to see that Iowa as a state was actually not doing too badly with the insurance uh, situation. But we, I mean, the Medicaid, <laughs> Well, this was the other thing that the governor did. So Iowa's is one of only three or four states that has not extended postpartum Medicaid coverage to 12 months. We still offer only 60 days of postpartum coverage. And the governor gave a big speech last Tuesday. She gives this annual address to the legislature where she outlines her priorities. And she came out and endorsed extending Medicaid coverage postpartum. And I thought, wow, I'm really surprised to hear that. That's something Democrats have wanted to do for years. And then immediately people, I posted something about, it. I'm pleasantly surprised the governor's on board with this. And immediately I got a message from someone telling me to look at the fine print because the way she's going to pay for that, instead of using part of our massive state budget surplus to cover more postpartum um, women on Medicaid, she's going to do that by reducing, by changing the income cap. So like right now, uh, pregnant Iowans can get Medicaid coverage if they're at 380% of the federal poverty level, and she wants to bring that down to closer to 200% of the federal poverty level. And by the way, that's really low. The federal poverty level is not a subsistence income for anybody. So, yep. so of course, you know, why would you do that? I mean, just help moms and babies. You know, just don't. Why would you do it at the expense of, of other people losing pregnancy coverage altogether? It makes no
1: yeah. sense. Yeah, it makes a kind of cruel sense. Speaking of cruelty um, and the terrible weather you're having, this week, um, the despicable governor of Texas uh, put a bunch of migrants on buses Wearing, you know, like flip flops and T-shirts, and dumped them on a road here in Chicago in the middle of a snowstorm uh, in the middle of the night. Um,
2: Absolutely despicable. Oh, you know, Ron DeSantis has been bragging. And when he's campaigning, he's been bragging about uh, sending migrants to Martha's Martha's Vineyard and other places. I mean, this is an applause line for Republican audiences in Iowa. They love that. What would Jesus do, right?
1: Who was homeless, right? His mom right. A- gave birth in a stable. They didn't have a place to go.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Um, Carolyn Fiddler is uh, the Virginia Dogwood's chief political correspondent. She is, uh, you know, an astute chronicler of uh, state politics, as ugly as that gets. Um, and she is uh, really an expert on what's going on in state governments across the country. Uh, she if you if you look at her work not just in the Dogwood but in uh, her newsletter this week in State House action, you'll see that she invariably reports with clarity but also with humor and wit. Carolyn, welcome back. Oh, it's Chris. It's Chris. It's Chris. <laughs> oh, my. My schedule's upset. Hello, Let me tell everybody. Sorry. Carolyn will be later. So, Chris Geidner is with us now. Sorry. Chris is a, is a journalist who does not cover state houses. He covers the law. And um, I mean, he's the, I, I have the, to cover state houses sometimes. so That's true. Right. But but like he, uh, his his uh, he's the author of Law Dork, which is quoted by everybody. It's a sub stack letter. You need to read it. And he's a real expert. On, on, I mean, nobody watches what's going on in courthouses like Chris does. Uh, and I. there's so much going on that we need to talk about. So, Chris, thank you. And I apologize for uh, reading my schedule wrong. Hey,
3: it, it, it's been a long
1: week.
4: <laughs>
1: it has been. Look, I want to talk about the Trump cases. But before we do, and, and you, you know this, I want to talk about Homeland Security's emergency filing this week brought about by the armed standoff at Eagle Pass, Texas. What can you tell us about the case that surrounds what's really like the 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 tensest military problem between a state and the federal government since I don't know, since Sumter? <clears throat> yeah, and in yeah.
3: It is, but it's also not. Um, I mean, I think that there's a, a a reality here that Texas is is basically trying to see how far this Supreme Court will let them go, um, and uh, and that this this specific case of of how they're they're dealing with. The, the the park and the boat slip and uh, how federal officials are able to get to different areas in the Rio Grande um, they, they're they're going back and forth in court and there was this supplemental filing that DOJ filed yesterday on on Friday um, that, that basically said like, We're asking for permission to get to places where federal law says we're allowed to go and Texas isn't letting us, um, which is which is wild. Um, There was, however, a a filing today that I I just read through uh, before we were talking um, where it's clear that Texas. Even even Texas, even the Texas Solicitor General knows that the the claims in the last filing for DOJ were going to be too much for this Supreme Court to to be OK with. And so they filed a response today that basically says, like, oh, to the extent that that Homeland Security feels like they weren't allowed, that's wrong that's that's not what we were meaning to do. Um we we uh already this morning uh have begun working to try to to avert that to so uh to the extent that was a problem, it shouldn't be, and therefore you should allow the Fifth uh injunction to remain in place. Um Thank it, goodness it's really a oh, lack Well, it's good and bad. I mean, it's good because it is like Texas standing down a little bit. But it's also Texas wants to keep that injunction from the Fifth Circuit in place. And so they're trying to give in, basically, by something that you might be familiar with, effectively what's referred to as voluntary cessation. Normally, that's not government on government activity, but voluntary cessation is when government stops doing something that somebody's challenging in order to try to get rid of the case. And sometimes courts won't let the government get away with that because they'll say this was voluntary cessation and you could change your mind at any point. And so the case is still a live case. It's not moved. And so that's sort of what Texas is trying to do with today's filing. They're 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 saying, okay, this thing that that DOJ told you yesterday that everybody said was wild. Um, we're not doing that. But we also want you to leave the injunction in place that allowed us to do that in the first place. So yeah. they, they they could get, a mess. Yeah, it's it's a mess and they're trying to keep this injunction in place so that they can take uh extreme steps when they want to going forward in this case. So well, I, I hope that I think I DOJ you're right. probably file a reply quickly, uh, yep. saying that say, I, I I would be shocked if we don't see a DOJ reply today or tomorrow that doesn't use the phrase voluntary cessation.
1: All of this is is what's going on in court, but I assume that that if you are, um, you know, uh, the Department of Homeland Security. If you are uh, Chief Patrol Agent Robert Danley on the border, that you take the filing you just talked about that happened today, and you say, OK, I get it. I can now go to the boat launch and do my job on the Rio Grande River, and he's going to go try and do that. And, you know, let's hope that communications is good enough so that the Texas National Guard uh has also been informed that they need to let them do it and they don't have some kind of arm standoff. I mean, it, it's just yeah. so dangerous, yeah. this game they're playing.
3: Yeah, no, it it is. And it, it's, I mean, it, <laughs> there's a reason why back, back in the day when you and I would have said we had a conservative Supreme Court, but, it was nothing like today's. Um, they they struck down Arizona's SB ten seventy and basically said, "Look, immigration—you you don't get to make your own laws, states. Like that—that's—that's that's not your thing." And th- this this modern era of the Supreme Court, um, it 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 feels. It was weird to call it modern because it's more retrograde um, it is is really we can't clearly say that this court would issue the same sort of ruling. Uh, and so and that's that, because that of is states, allowing, rights. Eh, it's because. They're politicians, it's because okay. I was wondering if you would do that Chris. before.
1: Yeah, I was wondering if you did. <laughs> so, so you don't you don't discern any legal doctrine here. You, you you're viewing this as political there so you is can't no say, new
3: legal doctrine.
1: Yeah. And, and it isn't old states rights, because I, I'm guessing you don't expect them to say, oh, of course, Colorado has the right to kick the uh, anybody off the ballot for, for violating the 14th amendment.
3: Colorado. Well, the 14th, that's a different state rights question. Like right. the, the the whole thing is that the, the, I mean, basically throughout history, like if it has to do with immigration or, or, or war, or foreign policy, we 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 almost courts almost completely defer to to the the executive branch unless a specific explicit constitutional provision is by being violated, accused of being violated, alleged to being violated, and right. so like the supremacy clause is going to control a state action um and and that is the sort of thing that made the like the SB 1070 case in arizona a, 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 an easy case relatively speaking but but now clearly texas thinks that they can at least fight this and and push for some sort of independent authority um i mean other states have have also in the the past few years oklahoma um the states that that tried to enforce trump policies after trump left and and they wanted like to have standing to to enforce trump policies claiming that like they were going to be harmed by 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 biden changing the policies i mean it's all been ridiculous but but this this is what you get when you think that the the Supreme Court might back you. I mean, people are going to make arguments. I mean, that that's just a reality that that lawyers are are going to make arguments for their clients, trying to uh, trying to push the adjudicator as far as they can in their direction.
1: So let's turn to the Fourteenth Amendment in Colorado. What do you yeah. expect?
5: I don't know.
3: Honestly, it's I mean, the 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 the, the law to me is clear um, that the 14th Amendment Section three do, should and does apply to the president. And it does and should apply to Trump's actions on January 6th. And it uh, is self-executing, meaning Congress doesn't need to pass additional legislation to put it into effect. And that, therefore, if a state uh, wants to, under its laws, set its standards for ballot qualification to include some sort of uh, either an independent review A court review, a um, in the case of what we're seeing in Maine, the secretary of state's review, basically some some uh, provision in state law that says that somebody has the authority to determine whether or not a candidate on the ballot is qualified. And if that's the case, then they, at state, uh, has, has a provision in place by which Trump can be excluded.
1: So a, a state's rights view of that law, of the Constitution, would say Colorado has that right. Mr. Trump, you can run in Texas, but you can't be on the ballot. In I mean, I guess they can say you can be on the ballot, but if you're elected, you can't serve. I don't know how they're going to Try and- well, that's actually an argument that some of the people are
3: making is that Colorado doesn't have the right to that that under Section three you can't remove somebody from the ballot. You it, it's a a prohibition on holding office, not being elected to office, um, which I think is a, a, a an absurd argument. Um, yes, absolutely. That that's the the argument that. Um, Oh, I forget who made it. It, it, it was. It, it's been in a couple of briefs, but it was um, most most stringently in the uh, the Jones Day brief by by Noel Francisco, yeah. the former uh, Solicitor
1: General. Well, as you say, lawyers I, are going to argue for their clients. It doesn't make all their arguments good. <laughs>
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, all of that, so that, that those are like some of the, the legal issues you've got. Basically, the the two big legal issues are the constitutional amendment and that's the uh, is Section 4, is Section 3 self-executing? Does the president, does the presidency, is the presidency covered by Section 3 and did what Donald Trump did Surrounding January 6 violates Section 3. Those are the the constitutional, the Section 3 questions. Then the second set of questions are the implementation questions. It's the okay if it is self-executing. How does it how does it get executed? And that's then the question about state law and whether or not a state authorizes somebody to take action that would remove him from uh, from from the ballot or prevent him from appearing on the ballot or prevent votes from being counted in, in his name. So those are the two legal issues. Then the question is, we've got this before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court didn't grant the uh, Colorado Republican Party's petition, which was a very narrow petition that asked Specific questions. Uh, I, I forget what the three questions were, but it, it asked in those several questions I, I mentioned, it, it asked the justices just to take up the, I think it was the officer question um, and the self executing question. Um, and they didn't do that. Instead, they took up this Trump petition, which is a very uh, broad, sort of generic question of was the Colorado Supreme Court correct to say that Trump couldn't be on the ballot in violation because of a violation of Section 3, which in some ways, for, for those of us who want like a big argument that looks at everything, that's sort of the better opportunity because it, it puts everything on the table. Um, it, it does make it potentially much more complicated over the next month and a half. As to what we're going to be seeing in briefs, what arguments we're going to be seeing, what's going to actually happen at the oral arguments on February 8th. And ultimately, for, for people who want Trump off the ballot, it gives a lot more possible reasons why the justices could end up issuing a ruling that would overturn Colorado, because basically— those who want Trump off the ballot have to win every argument. Trump just needs to win one of the arguments.
1: That's interesting. I mean, just, you know, I, I actually think they might throw him off the ballot, but it's the chaos that will follow is hard to, it's not a legal question. That's a politics question. But the chaos that will follow will be enormously confusing for the country, for sure. Yeah, I and mean, hey. it
3: will. I mean, you could have a situation where where a, a leading presidential candidate cannot be on seven primary ballots. Then we'd have this question all again in the general election. Does that mean that in those seven states that the candidate who wins the Republican Party's nomination, if they then nonetheless, despite the fact that he wasn't allowed on those seven states primary ballots, um, does that mean that we just wouldn't have a Republican candidate on, for example, the main in Colorado general election ballot. It it is a weird
1: situation. The man has driven the country into strange places. Um, Chris, his his immunity, presidential immunity was an issue in the D.C. Circuit Court this week. What happened and how will that impact the rest of the Trump trial schedules?
3: Yeah, it went really bad for Trump. Um, there, (laughs) that, that's the, the short and long of it. Um, Mm -hmm. it, it, it it could have gone worse, I suppose. They could have ruled from the bench. Um, but it, it, it it did not go well for him. Um, it was a, there were two, uh, Biden appointees on the bench, but there also was a, a, uh, a George H.W. Bush appointee, Judge Karen Henderson, and she was very skeptical. Um, and I honestly thought it was entirely possible that we could have gotten a, uh, a ruling, uh, by Friday. Um, yeah. we obviously didn't. I would be shocked if we do not get a ruling this coming week. Um, yeah. and I think that, um, Given how quickly they proceeded um, with scheduling the case, uh, I think that depending on the results, they will also put, uh, put procedures in place to ensure that even if Trump does want to seek en banc review from the court, that is done in a very quick fashion. Um, based on the fact that the court already has a majority of Democratic appointees and the way that it looks, at least one of the Republican appointees is going to be siding against Trump. Um, he doesn't have a good chance of getting on bank review. And so I think what we could see is even if he does want to have the full DC circuit review it, um, that they'll sort of have a very quick timeline of like he can file his brief within seven days. DOJ has to respond in four days and he can reply like two days later and then they deny. And okay, so then they bought another week, he has then they to want go to go to the, Supreme, to the court, Supreme Court, right?
1: And the Supreme Court yes. already said we're not going to hear this until after the uh, appellate court does. So does the Supreme Court then just not accept the case, or are they going to go and schedule a hearing on it? I, I'm
3: getting I mean, like, well, how does this affect people, the underlying? Yeah, trial? no, I've I've had like I've had some some not fights, but but some disagreements online um, about this. And I mean, I, I I get the the fact that like legally speaking, it is possible for the Supreme Court to just, like, let's say we have a 3-0 ruling from the D.C. circuit uh, yep. saying that Trump doesn't have immunity. Uh, he asked for a bunk review. Let's say best-case scenario for the argument, the hypothetical we're making, let's say no judges dissent from the denial of en banc review. So even the Trump appointees don't say they want to hear it on banc. So it looks really bad for Trump. Like even in that scenario, do we like, let's step back from Donald Trump. Let's step back from what's going on. Do we really want a situation where a federal prosecution of the former president of the United States is being authorized despite novel constitutional claims and the supreme court doesn't weigh in on them like it it seems weird right
1: well the novel cons- the, the, he's not being ch- the, 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 he's not being charged based on a novel constitutional claim his defense well, is a exactly novel constitutional the fact that
3: he's the president
1: i guess it's all novel because we've never had it before no- yeah. Right. I but mean, the only issue just, before the Supreme Court here would be immunity, right? The immunity. And, and I, mean, I think it would be I think it would
3: be weird for the Supreme Court to allow the prosecution of a president, a former president, to go forward without it definitively weighing in on that.
1: To, for, for even the, though they can. A, Supreme Court. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. What? I mean, after the case, if the result goes against Trump, he can appeal that to the Supreme Court. But you're saying it should have yeah. just to allow it to proceed. The, they should they should affirm or they should they should opine on this question of immunity, as crazy as it I mean, was. If, residents allowed to murder people. Argument.
3: I mean, if they if they if they didn't grant cert before judgment, they obviously don't. They don't think that, I mean, they could have granted cert before judgment and then, I yep. mean, resolved it immediately and been done with this. They they obviously think that it's enough that, like, they wanted to see an appellate ruling. Um, I mean, in some ways, I think it's insulation for them. Uh, and I think it, it is good that it wasn't a three Democratic appointee panel. I think yeah. it's good that Karen Henderson yeah. was there. I,
1: I, I agree with you. And so, Chris, if it goes to the Supreme Court and they say, yeah, we want to hear it. How long does that take? I mean, I just want to know whether we're going to get a chance it to have this quick. trial.
3: I mean, look at look at how quickly they uh, have scheduled the Colorado case. I mean, arguments are in less than a month. Um on a case that was just granted last Friday, uh, yep. so I mean, I think that we could easily see. I think it will be pushed back. It's not like it, it's not going to start March 4th or whatever. Yep. Uh, but I think, um, I mean, any any trial lawyer would have told you that, like, when a judge sets the trial day, the the odds of that actually happening is
1: is very slim. Um, yeah, frustrating. I get it. Do you expect any you know, of the Supremes to recuse? I don't. I
3: mean, they, well, they, I mean, nobody recused last Friday. Right. Um, and so I, I would, I mean, I would maybe, maybe, maybe there's an argument that the, 14th Amendment case is a forward looking case that Thomas doesn't need to recuse from, but he should recuse from yeah. the January 6th case. I mean, there's an argument for that, but I, 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 I mean, certainly somebody could make an argument. If they want to come up with a way that we could end up getting a, a Thomas recusal from the 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 January 6th prosecution, but not yeah. 14th Amendment yeah. stuff. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think that the fact that he didn't recuse from that is a sign that he's probably not
6: okay. going to refuse from from this. Well,
1: well, look, we have like a minute and a half left, and I wanted to ask you about the fifth circuit because i think people need to know a lot more about it than they know but instead i'm going to ask you this like the, the, the supreme court only has so much time in every docket and the, and the supreme court's job after all isn't to like judge a case it's to tell us what the law is right i mean that's really what they're about they 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 do this so that we better understand what the law is and like 8% or maybe 9% of everything they're going to hear this year is about donald trump one way or another how is it that this one man has us so confused about what the law is around um, presidential elections?
3: I mean, it. it, it well, I mean, it's it, it's this is the problem of a I'll always come back to the Senate not having convicted him. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he should not be eligible to run for president. Like that, that's the bottom line. Like he, he should, if they had done that, I think there would have been a lot less interest in pursuing the, these um, these novel, uh, prosecutions. Um, I think there certainly we wouldn't have seen the 14th amendment discussion we're seeing, uh, no, no. it, it, that lack of Senate action has just, forced the system and I've written about this, forced forced us to use other tools in the system to address the unprecedented actions that he took surrounding and in the aftermath of the twenty twenty election.
1: Yeah. Well it's it, it um yeah it's very frustrating. Um and in the end of the day not the Supreme Court's fault. <laughs> This is the one thing that wasn't the Supreme Court's fault. That's right. I agree with you. I agree. With you. Well, well, we'll see. It, it has not yet it their it's not be. their fault. Yeah. The we'll the see day. what happens. Thus
6: it, yeah.
1: yeah. far. It has not been yeah. the Supreme Court's fault. Yeah. All right, Chris. Again, I apologize for the uh confusion <laughs> no, at the beginning no, of our no. conversation, but a great conversation and as always it's a pleasure to catch up and And I know the people who are listening really value your insights into the way the courts work. Next time, I'd love you to unpack the crazy Fifth Circuit for us, but um, we're not going to get to it today.
3: (laughs) Yeah, always, always uh, willing and eager to talk about the Fifth Circuit. Uh, But give my best to Carolyn when she gets on.
1: I will, yes. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, everybody, take a quick break. And you've already heard the introduction. Uh, Carolyn Fidler will be back with us in just a moment.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, everybody, as you know, um, because I covered this ground a minute ago, Carolyn Fidler is back with us. And Carolyn... Um, What you don't know is at the beginning of the last segment, I read my calendar wrong and I introduced you to everybody, only it was the the fabulous Chris (laughs) Geidner I was actually talking to from Law Dorf. I love Chris. Yes, he said to send you his best. (laughs) I appreciate
7: that. He is a delightful human and I I love that you had him on and that is a hard act for me to follow
1: for sure. (laughs) Well, he was very good, but you're always very good. And we have so much (laughs) to talk about. Oh my gosh, yeah. (laughs) So so let's let's start in in Virginia, because that's your 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 home. Um, I know you could talk about the whole country, but let's start in Virginia first, because that's where the country held its breath, wondering whether Glenn Youngkin would pull off a victory in the state legislative elections <laughs> late last year and propel himself into contention as the alternative to the alternatives to Donald Trump in this crazy <laughs> GOP world. Right. But in yeah, our Democrats, Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Democrats now have majorities in the Virginia House and the Senate. Nobody cares in the rest of the country about Glenn Youngkin anymore. But what does the new legislature <laughs> look like and how is that election changing the state?
7: Oh, man, the, the new legislature looks amazing as long as you don't want your legislature to be old and white. It is the youngest and most diverse legislature in Virginia's history. It is so cool. Uh, The the House versus Senate basketball game this year is actually going to be interesting because, you know, the average age of the players is going to be under
1: 55. (laughs) Wow. So, so, So it looks more like the country.
7: It does. And more like Virginia itself. And yeah, more like the country. And for the first time in its 405 year history as a legislative body, the Virginia House has a black speaker and it is so, so cool.
1: Wow. So that's right? you know, I mean, we, we if this is this is a hello everybody out there who's listening who is in a complete existential panic because the Republicans are still the Republicans. They're not gonna win. And look at Virginia. They, I mean, it's just there's good stuff going on.
7: There really is. It's early yet, and you know there's a lot of session left, but uh, things are off to a, you know a good start. It's going to be interesting. It's, we're going to see who Youngkin really is this time, also, which I think is going to be just kind of academically interesting, if not like interesting to the rest of the country, because he's obviously not running for president. Uh, so, but we're going to see what well, this guy is really about,
1: and we're going to see it because right when they when they had control. They were able to control what he what they voted on and what he had to respond to. But I would now expect the Democrats to force him to do things like veto them when they ban assault weapons or do something like that.
7: That's exactly right. It's going to be exactly this is how we're going to find out who Glenn Youngkin really is and what kind of political future that he wants. Like maybe he's going to because in Virginia, governors can't run for reelection. He could run for governor again in four years, but he cannot run for reelection. So is he going to like go home and fall asleep on a big pile of money every night? Or is he going to like run for Senate? So what he does, uh, this session or next is going to really tell us who he is and what he wants to do in the future. And, uh, we'll see because you're right. Democrats are absolutely going to force him to take positions on assault weapon bans, on, uh, on abortion. on all manner, uh, uh, weed legalization, uh, well, the, the sell of recreational weed. Weed is technically legal in Virginia, but you still can't sell it recreationally.
1: Yep, yep. So, so, the, so the Democrats are going to pass a bunch of bills that comport with what the majority of Virginians and the majority of Americans all want versus yep. the, the trump maggot doctrine that they're trying to shove down our throats across the country. And he's going to have to take a side. That's interesting.
7: Yeah, no, we're going to, you know, I mean, and a lot of interesting bills are going to get blocked. Uh, you know, um, the Republicans in Virginia have already filed bills uh, that uh, target transgender kids in schools. They're, tr- they're they're filing bills and they're filing like little Weasley bills. Like one that I noticed was like this guy wants to pass a, wants to create a requirement that people who want hysterectomies and um have to sign a um, have to sign a medical uh, waiver, basically, um, which most doctors make you do anyway before a procedure just for liability purposes. But in Virginia, like you don't have to legally, there's no statute saying you have to sign a mm-hmm. consent medical consent form before a surgical procedure unless you're a minor or for whatever reason, you're like considered incapacitated as an adult. And so the only people who need these procedures are women. So this guy is saying that women like can't like logically consent to anything without uh you know they he's putting women on par with like with children and people who can't make their own decisions legally so little things like that are popping up and uh it's uh, you know, republicans are going to republican they can't help it <laughs> so
1: Youngkin won his election by capitalizing on, like, COVID passions around schools. And he promised to he improve did. schools around the board. You know, um, and I, like, I don't know how a Republican wins on school reform, but let's just say the Democrats did not do their best in that election. Um, they did but not. But he won. So, so <laughs> what, I mean, I assume since they've run everything, schools are much better now, right? I mean, what, like, what's his record? <laughs> Really look like his, a few years. Ago.
7: Oh, his record on schools is his record on schools is pretty garbage. Uh, things have not rebounded to pre-COVID uh, levels. Whether it's uh, student attendance, student achievement, he hasn't been able to pull off any of these things. And uh, now we have reports saying that schools in Virginia are not properly funded. Like uh, this is a nonpartisan uh, part of government that said, "Hey, you know our school funding formula is backwards and is like helping." Virginia students fall behind, basically. So he's in a position now uh, with the, the introduction of the budget and with a session to actually fix that. And he is not indicating that he's really going to. His education budget proposals effectively cut money from education, like once you do all the math. He has a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of uh, it's full three-card Monty happening. Um, but folks didn't just fall off the turnip truck in Virginia. They see what he's doing. And so we'll see if he actually agrees to proposals that will improve education in Virginia or if he like, digs in his heels. He's like, no, it's my way or the highway. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be a very interesting. 60 days in Virginia, for sure. Well, might be more than 60 days. It <laughs> could go into overtime
1: hey well well I, don't, I just don't know the answer to this will Virginia, like other states have a referendum on the ballot in November about abortion
7: uh actually uh no, not this year uh the thing in Virginia yeah. is unlike unlike a lot of other states uh citizens cannot put measures on the ballot so it just does not yeah, same exist in Illinois. That's something you can yeah. do in Virginia right so uh but there is a there is a ballot referendum mechanism of a sort. It's how you amend the state constitution in Virginia. But it's complicated and it takes a long time, which, you know, amending a state constitution, it's not terrible that there is a, a, you know, kind of a high bar for it. But what has to happen, what Democrats are going to start this year is uh, is a a movement to amend the state constitution to protect abortion rights. But what they have to do, they have to pass this through either this legislature or the next one or the other. It doesn't have to be both. Um, In fact, it, it can't be both. They have to pass it one time in the next two years, and then there has to be another election uh, for the state house, and then they have to pass it again, hmm. and then the next fall it will go to voters to ratify. So, what could That's end up happening? So, Demo- yeah, so Democrats could pass a pro reproductive rights uh, a constitutional amendment this year through the legislature. The governor has no veto power. over This it just has to pass both both chambers. And then you have to wait until 2025 after the next, uh, sorry, 2026 after the next election to yep, pass it again. it again. And and, if they yeah. pa- and then if you pass it that session, it's on the ballot that fall in an even numbered year, which means usually higher turnout, which is probably good for this kind of uh, ballot measure. So yeah, really interesting. it should take a while. but it, yep. it, But as long as Democrats keep a majority in the state house in 25, it will happen.
1: Well, this is an issue that helps them do that. Yes, absolutely. Let's turn to the rest of the country. Um, Absolutely. You you watch all this country. So did you hear the one about Robin Voss, the speaker of the powerful speaker of the House in Wisconsin? Um, There's a recall petition now in his district. And Speaker (laughs) Voss says, oh, well, wait, it's just because the people in my district, some of them just won't accept the, the results of an election they don't win. I, I seem to recall who was on the other side it's, of that.
7: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's the irony should escape no one in that. It's actually quite hilarious. I'm sure he's safe. The recall, Republicans themselves made recalling lawmakers more difficult after the recalls of the early, of the early part of the last decade. So yep. he is probably just fine but it is so funny that he's facing this <laughs> for yeah. not being sufficiently election denialist
1: right even though he like greenlit the and paid for the crazy you know uh investigation into the 2020 election that went on forever and found nothing he did the he did and then, yeah yep yep and his state i believe the state the senator from that state Ron Johnson was the uh courier for the fake electors.
7: Yeah. Yeah. It feels like that should be illegal on several levels, but that's a whole other
1: conversation. (laughs) And and in the Sunshine State, they've managed to ban a dictionary from a school district this week.
7: Yeah. Yeah. And Shakespeare. And uh, um, I think I saw that Bill O'Reilly was unhappy because his book got banned. Wow. How much I know. fun is that? No. No, you know, right? It turns out they actually the, only the, want to ban a li- liberal books, but whoops. Uh.
1: So, so, But the state attorney general, a woman named Ashley Moody, she said, mm-hmm. libraries exist to convey the government's message. That was
7: that, her, that was literally her not official true. position. Right? That's literally not true. It's, I mean, it, I laugh, but it's actually really, really sad and troubling. But um, no, that's 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 not what they're for. That's quite the opposite. They exist to expose more humans to to more ideas. Um, and uh, Florida is doing everything they can to stop that.
1: So <sighs> Florida. Well, what, what, like, what else have you seen that's kind of interesting around the country? Oh gosh.
7: Um, so a lot of these legislatures are just kicking off. So you're getting your like state of the state addresses from various governors and folks are just organizing their legislatures and and introducing their bills. It's a, it's a, it's a calm before the storm moment in state legislatures all across the country. But we're already seeing more anti trans attacks, more restrictive, uh, anti reproductive rights bills. I mean, Dem- uh, Republicans. In almost every state, not obviously Virginia, uh, it's an election year for their state legislatures. So you're going to get a lot of election posturing for sure. Whether these bills pass or not, Republicans are going to file bills and argue about bills that they want people to talk about while they're running for reelection. So it's going to it could get it could be even uglier this year than it was last year. Last year was more of a crappy policy year. Republicans trying to accomplish things that actually hurt people. Um, and this year, they're running for re-election, so they're going to want to make a lot of noise um, whether or not they actually accomplish the things that they're attempting. So uh, it's uh, it's going to be a really gross year <laughs> in state legislatures. We're yeah, going to see going a lot of ugly. ugly bills proposed and debated.
1: And, the, and your sense, and I, 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 I've heard this from other people, I just want to Heard from you too your sense is the ground they've staked out that they want this once great american political party to go to ground on is um claiming that every state's a border state and we really have to panic about great replacement theory and oh, that somehow everybody in the country is going to become trans because they're allowed to read books <laughs> right that that is the that, that is what this the party that used to say, we're going to come into existence because we think slavery should not be allowed to expand and the slave owners should not be allowed to dictate policy across America. The party that started that way is now the party of we're just going to not let kids read because they'll become trans.
7: Yeah, it's a it's a weird uh, it's a weird thing to stake your political uh, personality on as a party, but that's absolutely what they're doing. And uh, it's going to be a bad year if you're right. Also that. Oh, my gosh. I love that people think he's not going to be the nominee. I feel like there's this weird (sighs) sense that people are pretending he might not be the nominee, but he obviously is. (laughs) It's going to be it's going to be an interesting election year. Presidential election years always are further down the ballot for many reasons. There's a lot of ballot roll off. A lot of people will vote for president and not vote for anything else on the ballot. But even higher turnout doesn't really mean it impacts state legislative elections. As much as it could, Um, but it's uh, it's going to be an ugly year full of uh, ugly, ugly policies and ugly debate uh, for anyone who isn't, you know, a white cisgender person.
1: Yeah, I was talking about that at the beginning of the show. I think um, the Republicans are losing and Virginia was a great example. You know, they thought they Mm -hmm. had it, but but what they the things that they stand for, people don't want. And, and if they can be as hardcore as they want, that core isn't growing. That core is offending people left and right and bringing others together. Um,
7: it's so, true. So not, and like another. Uh, go well ahead. No, another interesting thing is that, like, so voters respond to when uh, politicians are authentic. Uh, that tends to resonate better than trying to be a milk toast X, Y or Z. Democrats saw this in 2012. When they tried to run as like Republican light because they saw the 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 way the country or even in 2010, they tried to run as like kind of Republican light because the polls were so bad for Democrats way back then. I'm really dating myself, but um, it didn't work out because voters don't trust politicians who pretend to be something that they're not. They respond to authenticity and Republicans are being really authentic right now about who they are and what they stand for. And even though they're being authentic, people just don't like it. <laughs> people are anti the things that they earnestly, honestly stand for.
1: Yeah. I think some of them don't earnestly, honestly stand for it. I think they're scared, but um, <sighs> they're scared of the base they've created.
7: They, they <laughs> did it to but, themselves. They, they play themselves.
1: Yep. So, so, so though, know, whenever a, powerful entity is losing and threatening really losing this is when they behave at their worst and that's been that's uh-huh. been true you know in every in everywhere in every war every time there's somebody who's got power and they're really threatened they do terrible things and i feel <laughs> yep. and, and i think the republicans are that cornered animal and they know it um i mean i you know I, it's cold here in chicago and the governor of texas is putting people on buses in flip-flops and t-shirts and dumping them on my streets at night. Right? Terrible. <laughs> that is that is awful. That is inhumane. Inhumane, right? And and this week although he's backed off a little bit, he set the Texas National Guard to tell the US government in the form of Homeland Security, they cannot access the Rio Grande to police uh, uh, immigration down there. That Texas is going to do that. I'm it not itself. sure he's allowed to do that.
7: Like, I'm a little fuzzy on that and, area and of the law. They went to the Supreme like Court. not allowed
1: to do that. <laughs> nope, but they did it. They did it. Um, and, and, you know, they, they want to push to see how far the Supreme Court will let them get away with. Um, sure. So the, the ugly things, you're absolutely right. We're going to, in an ugly, ugly period, they're going to test and push – how do, how do the rest of us, you, me, and the rest of Americans, how do we not become them when we're so pissed off at them? Uh, by,
7: by remembering why we stand for what, what we stand for, by, by remembering to have a little bit of grace uh, for the folks who aren't, aren't a part of this. Like they're, like the folks who are being bussed up from, uh, from Texas, it's not their fault. Like this, they're, they're they're not the ones doing this, just having a little bit of grace and remembering that folks like them are, are being victimized by Republicans being Republicans. Um, they're taking it out on people who have no power in this situation. And the rest of us have to remember that, um, that's, uh, you know, while we want to see Republicans like lose power, we have to just remember that that's not all that's at stake right now. Um, we have to remember that, we're all humans and that lots, lots of people are being caught up in uh, in their hateful uh, political battle. And uh, and just remember to uh, to keep our eye on the ball uh, in terms of like remembering why we are, why we stand for what we stand for. But also we have to, you know, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to remember that we can't accomplish the things that we want to accomplish if we don't have power. Republicans are great yeah. at doing whatever they want when they have power, and Democrats have to, you know, remember to throw our elbows where we should.
1: <laughs> and I guess the Republicans aren't really—I mean, the issues they've chosen—they're—they're—they may be hot buttons, but they're not like ninety-nine percent of what governing is about in the country. No, they're and not people in governing. They're just not interested no. in governing. So all of the burden and governing is hard work. All of the burden of responsible government falls on Democrats now. Um, We have to remember we're all in it together, but that is a big burden.
7: It is, it is, and like, and it's, it's. I remember, like, um, it feels like a long time ago now. But when uh, the Republicans were fighting over whether, when Republican, when the House of, of, of Representatives was speakerless. Like certain pundits were like, well, Democrats have to be the grown-ups and help them elect a speaker because Republicans can't, you know, clearly can't do it themselves. I'm like, no, 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 no. They're the ones with the majority. It's literally their job. Like, stop putting this on the folks who are not. No, Democrats didn't do this, but they try to tell Democrats that they were the ones who were supposed to help Republicans out of it as the adults in the room, and that's 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 bad and wrong. And uh, Democrats have to remember that while. They may be the grownups in the room. Power is still power.
1: Well, you can't do anything just, unless you have it. It's worth reminding everybody that the Democrats said, Hakeem Jeffries said, we will help you, but we are not giving, we're not doing this for nothing. Right. No, there are trades to be had. There are, thing, there are things that we want to vote on. We got like, what's yeah. the use of helping you elect somebody if the result is the same as if we wait and you pick your own.
7: Exactly. No, so, completely right. Like, uh, yep. Like in Ohio, Democrats got it in Ohio. They helped uh, block uh, an extreme right winger become from becoming a House Speaker there mm-hmm. um, by voting with some moderate Republicans. But they they made a deal; they got something right. out of it, and uh, yep. and it was unfair to expect them to do anything else.
1: And it would have been stupid. Also, yeah. that <laughs> I'm yep. glad they weren't yep. stupid. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> y- y- I'm looking I'm actually looking forward to this year. I see. Did you talk a little bit about what you saw in terms of grassroots work and organizing that you saw in Virginia that you might expect to see now across the country this year?
7: Uh, I think that I think that uh, reproductive rights are going to remain a big motivator. I think that no one has forgotten about that. Republicans keep hoping that Democrats will kind of forget about it, that women will stop caring about their own bodily autonomy. And that's just not happening. As much as they want to will it into existence. Uh, Democrats still care about it. Women still care about it. They don't
1: understand that it is an ongoing threat to people's lives. Mm. They don't understand that this wasn't like a news cycle. I said something dumb and it'll pass. They're actually harming human beings every day with these bans.
7: Yeah. Yeah. No, real people like people uh, almost dying of uh, complications from having to flee from states to, to get life-saving medical procedures. It's yep. These stories keep popping up, and Republicans are like, oh, these are being blown out of proportion. No, like someone dying when they don't have to is not being blown out of proportion. That's a person's life. You're the ones who are like, oh, we're saving babies. All right, what about the mothers? You're condemning them to early death for no good reason. And the baby would also die if the baby weren't alri- already non-viable. Yeah, <sighs> It just doesn't make right? any sense. So, There's so, no, they so they I caught agree the car. The completely. dog caught the car. They have no idea what to do with it.
1: This issue is going to motivate um, people who aren't who, who don't want to be part of the Democratic Party, because a lot of people think a box on every political party, but they care about things like reproductive freedom. So they're going to organize.
7: They are. They are. And uh, between uh, reproductive rights ballot measures and like weed legalization measures on the ballot this year, that's going to be that's going to be a, a driver of turnout. And I hope that the states where folks can put that kind of thing on the ballot, I hope it happens everywhere. We'll see. It's still early, but uh, it's going to be an interesting year for sure.
1: It's going to be a really important year. And so, as you said earlier, it, we should prepare everybody for how ugly it's going to be. Oh,
7: it's going to be so ugly. Oh, my God. They're going to pull out all the stops. We're going to look. We're going to see. There were there were some shenanigans in, in Virginia last year. They were kind of low-key, and they clearly didn't succeed. But uh, it was absolutely a test run for more shenanigans in other states uh, this year. And uh, it's going to be bad. It's going to be gross.
1: We've been warned by the FBI that we should expect foreign interference. And foreign interference is going to be very tech savvy and social media savvy in ways that, um, you know, that that, uh, we haven't had before. So uh, Americans are going to have to keep their wits about them.
7: Oh, God help us. <laughs> it's a tall order. <laughs> she will.
1: <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure catching up. And, likewise, um, I, you know, as the legislatures around the country get churning, um, you know, people should know where they can find your work. Um, because it is, you know, so much fun and interesting. So tell everybody about that.
7: Yes, I'm at uh State uh dot dot uh gosh, it's not dot com. It's dot Anyway, just Google uh, this weekend State House Action or find me on social media at at CFID on uh, all the platforms, C-F-I-D-D. And I will have the latest in State House shenanigans all across the country, uh, especially as these legislatures ramp up. It's going to be I'm already drinking from a fire hose, which, you know, I'm used to. It's fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, in a few weeks, these things are going to be fully off and running and it's going to be interesting and it's going to be bad. Um, But as long as folks know what's up, I think uh, I think we'll be in an all right spot.
1: I agree with you. Ugly, but optimistic.
7: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's how I live my life. Always a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. Likewise. Take care.
1: Bye. (laughs) Bye. All right, everybody, That was uh, Carolyn Fidler, who is, of course, not just the author of This Week in State Action, but the Virginia Dogwood's chief political correspondent. Um, now, it's fun to catch up from time to time. We're going to take a break for the news. And when we come back, the uh, president of the Cook County Board and chairman of the Cook County Democratic Party, Tony Preckwinkle, is going to join us um, uh Interestingly enough, not to talk about local politics, but to help us understand the country. Stay tuned.
0: You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPD eight twenty.
1: Okay, everybody. As I told you before uh, the break for the news, we're joined by the uh, president of the Cook County Board and chairman of the Cook County Democratic Party. And for those of you who are not. uh, uh, living in Northwest Illinois, that means the Chicago area. Um, it's a huge job and, you know, governing in a democracy is hard and messy, but sometimes there are people who figure out how to do it well. Um, and Tony Preckwinkle is one of those. So she's really done a remarkable job over many years. Um, Tony, thank you for joining me today.
4: Well, thank you. Thank you. Some of you may know that uh, Edwin and I were colleagues for several years in the city council, long ago and far away.
1: Long ago ago and far away. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We were young. (laughs) <laughs> um, you were young i,
3: <laughs> I wasn't so young <laughs> I,
1: I i wanted to, i really wanted to talk to you today about something that has almost nothing to do with your job you know and something to do with it but not i will the, the governor of texas nice warm sunny southern texas is sending people into our freezing cold and snowy streets in the middle of the night and dropping them off you know who knows where like i mean in, in 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 not even in the in a place that's organized to keep them but in suburban cook county and all over your um you know the area that you're responsible county, for. will county will county as well oh my gosh so they, i'm age, like,
4: kane kendall
1: really What's the matter with okay you? so the, so for those of you who aren't Listen, for those of you who are you know, in Chicago, that is a that's like basically all over northern Illinois or north, you know, um, um, in places that have no infrastructure and, and and people are not equipped for the weather, let alone the world they're stepping into.
4: Well, Governor Governor Abbott in Texas has decided cynically to exploit the influx of new arrivals into the United States by sending them on busloads or planes. He's also chartered private planes and sent them to places like Washington, D.C. or New York City or Chicago. And we have struggled uh, to meet the needs of these new arrivals. Um, the county role, let me just say, the county role has been to provide health care. And we have been doing that since August of of 2022 when the buses first began arriving. And so we screen people, we provide immunizations and vaccinations and ongoing care for those who need it. Um, The city has been providing food and shelter uh, and the state has been providing support services. And more recently, the state has um, opened a shelter at a former CVS facility. And I think Mm -hmm. they'll be doing more going forward. But uh, Governor Abbott um, is engaged in human trafficking. I don't know how to put it any other way. Um, Misrepresenting, I think, to folks who are vulnerable and frightened and um, looking for opportunity um, and sending them on buses. And as I said, chartered planes on occasion to Chicago and uh, just dropping them off. And there was a a time in which they were coming to what we call the landing zone in Chicago. But more recently, he's because Chicago has enacted rules um, against just showing up there without um manifests of who's on board any idea who the passengers are and no hint of when they're going to arrive has started um ticketing the buses and brought them into bringing them into court um they had now started dropping people off at metro stations all over northeastern illinois or just random places um it's It's appalling. There's no other way to
1: put it. I I just want to get into the the values difference between, I guess, the two parties. Right. Because at least at least when it comes to governing, governing is supposed to solve problems. It's supposed to create opportunities for Americans there. There's a political problem on the border, but the Texas response to drop helpless people in places where they risk freezing to death um, and not cooperating with anybody, um, you know, up north about where that's going to happen so that we can organize to help them is that doesn't solve any problem.
4: No, and, and please understand, I mean. He has been sending these buses without notification to us. We often find out that they're coming from not-for-profit organizations in Texas, um, but without formal notification, without any, as I said, manifest on the buses as to who's actually on them, um, and just dropping them off. I mean, he has, they have dropped people off at metro stations in the middle of the night, and people are stuck there until the rush hour trains begin. I mean, and so in the middle of winter, um, you spend – Four, five, six hours on a metro platform, uh, unequipped to deal with the cold, oh. until even the first train arrives. So, uh, the, what they're doing, as I said, is appalling. As there's no other way to put it.
1: I, I just it speaks to me to a bigger question of values. I mean, and and I, we're going into what is going to be, I think, the ugliest political year either of us has ever seen, because these kinds of stunts are going to be. Are only going to increase, right? They're going to try and make everybody miserable and everybody distrustful of government. That's why it's so important that people like you actually just do the job. Make people. Well, have thank faith you. In I mean, government. thank you. I mean, we anticipate
4: that this will continue not just through the winter, but through the spring and the summer, and that um, you know there are rumors that he will ramp up actually uh, the buses through the summer into the convention in an effort to um, disrupt the convention and make it very difficult, of course, for government to function uh, with large numbers of buses arriving daily in the middle of this big event.
1: So He does understand, right, that the Republican convention is just, you know, 90 miles away, right? I mean, if he really is, is he really saying, from Texas, I can mess with Chicago, but Chicago can't mess with Milwaukee? He better be careful,
4: <laughs> i i'm I'm focused on trying to to meet the needs of our new arrivals and and let me just say for those who aren't aware um we we spend half of our budget we have a nine point three billion dollar budget and half of it goes to health care and so that's the lane that we've been in as the county and mm-hmm. we're we're now spending about four million dollars a month on health care for new arrivals and we anticipate that that's going to increase um and we have turned over a floor of one of our clinics on the northwest side uh, to serving the new arrivals. And, of course, put, put them in our health uh, healthcare system. And if they need additional care beyond their initial screenings, of course, they, mm-hmm. they, become, our, they become our patients. So um, we're doing our best in the areas where we have expertise um, and legacy obligations and responsibilities. That is health care. Uh, we're doing our best to serve the new arrivals, as we have served our residents for almost 200
1: years. And, and traditionally, border states, Texas, has gotten a boatload of federal money to help um, deal with the influx of of migration at the border, right? And that that money has not come to places like Illinois or New York. No, Bec- I no. Mean, I mean, one of, not, one of
4: one of our challenges. One of our challenges is yes, the money has not come to us, and. Actually, what's what's so ironic is that Governor Abbott has used some of the federal money that he's received to send people to
5: us. So,
1: yeah, um, well, uh, I hope our Congress claws back some of that and distributes it where the where the people are going. If they're not going to Texas, but they're coming here, we should share those resources.
4: Exactly. Um, and we desperately need federal resources to provide yeah food, shelter health care and support for our new arrivals and, and let me just say you know we have we have had an influx in Chicago of, of refugees from the Ukraine from uh, Afghanistan um, the challenge I think is that there were there were communities of Ukrainians and uh, communities of, of Muslim Americans if not Afghanis Uh, in Chicago to absorb those new arrivals and they came with work permits. And the challenge for the most recent new arrivals is that they don't have communities of support necessarily here and uh, they don't have work permits. So that, that has been a a, a tremendous um, challenge, both for them and for, for us as, as government officials charged with trying to meet their needs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I really appreciate this kind of update on on where we are and, and, you know, and your whatever visibility you have that this pipeline is going to continue. Um, The borders, I mean, human migration is a huge problem across the planet and um, Congress isn't likely to pass uh, better laws to tame the problem at our border because Republicans don't want to give Biden that win no matter what they say. About the, exactly about the border, so they they, they just want it to be a problem,
4: right? And I think I think it's important for everybody to understand that this is a this is as you say it's a global issue. I mean, if you think about it, people are moving from um, poorer parts of the world, which tend to be the southern hemispheres, into the richer parts of the world, which is the northern hemisphere, and that's not true just in the United States in relation to our our neighbors to the south. People are crossing the Mediterranean in rubber rafts. I mean, mm-hmm. we have to, we have to understand this is this is a global challenge of people looking for opportunity in the wealthiest parts of the world, um, opportunities which they often lack um, in their parts of the world, or they're fleeing, you know, persecution and um, tremendous poverty. So
1: and climate change, the number of people who are and climate in the drought change is unbelievable now. Yep. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. So the world is not really equipped for mass migration. The the numbers of migrants are biggest in Asia. They're biggest in Europe coming north from Africa, and they're third biggest in the Western Hemisphere. And yet it's a big problem here. So you can imagine the stress all over the world. Um, But we don't have a very good solution. And we can't get one in a Congress that wants to use this problem for political purposes.
4: Right. And and unfortunately, in this country, we've been challenged, whether the leaders have been Democrats, or Republicans, uh, to figure out how we're going to deal, not just with the latest wave of new arrivals, but the longstanding populations here that are undocumented. Um, it's, and it's not just I, I think there's a misperception that it's, you know, Mexican-Americans, they're undocumented people in our city from all over the world. And, you know, we've got to figure out as a country how we're going to um proceed with integrating these folks, many of whom have been living here and working here for years, if not decades, um, more fully into our country.
1: Yeah. But that's going to require, isn't it, congressional action and new laws?
4: Exactly. Exactly. It's going to require congressional action. There has to be a path forward to citizenship.
1: Um, You lead one of the uh, largest... Uh, Democratic Party organizations in the, in the country, the Cook County Democratic Party. Um, it's changed enormously in my lifetime um, from the old Richard J. Bailey machine into something that is much more diverse and much more welcoming of people. But there are a lot of folks who don't want to have anything to do with a political party. They don't ever want to be a Democrat they don't ever want to be a Republican. How are Democrats working with groups that care about things like, I don't know, abortion, but they don't want to be Democrats or or gun legislation, but they don't want to be Democrats. Are we doing a better job of working with, um, I guess you'd call them mission aligned other organizations?
5: Well, I, I,
4: all I can say really is that in the polling that we've done, um, the Democratic Party uh, and its values pull well in in Cook County. And I won't yep. speak beyond that because I, that isn't where we've done our work. But, um, you know, we believe that government, first of all, can work on behalf of people and be effective. We're not anti-government. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you know, we are concerned about outcomes for ordinary working people Um you know, quality education, a woman's right to choose, as you point out, reasonable gun control laws. There are all kinds of, I think, issues which um, resonate with people, whether or not they would say that they're a Democrat. Um, I was listening earlier on on the news, your own report of pe- more and more people saying they're independents. Well, that may be the case, but I think um, on issues like a woman's right to choose, that's that's a Democratic Party position, but I think it resonates in in those who would call themselves uh, independents. I, I was really mm-hmm. um, heartened, for example, by the the fall re-election of Governor Bashir in Kentucky. And basically, um, he presented himself as a pragmatic, reasonable person. And uh, one of the issues which he campaigned heavily on was was a woman's right to choose. And that may not have been the only reason that he carried the day, but he he. Uh, was able to run, run re-election, win re-election as a Democrat in Kentucky. Um, and I think that speaks to the ways in which the Democratic Party and its values reflect the the values of, of most Americans, frankly.
1: Yeah, I do, too. I don't think we are more divided than we've ever been. I just think one party has radicalized, but it's it's not growing. It's not going to attract more people into this, to its mean-spiritedness.
4: No, I think, um, and it, what particularly is heartening to me is that um, the opposition party, that is <laughs> the Republican Party, um, is having a very difficult time relating, I think, to younger people, younger voters. And um, that speaks well to, to the future of the Democratic Party. But we surely have to get through this extraordinarily
1: difficult election first. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tony, thank you for your time, and thank you for, you know, talking about this very difficult issue, but also for the work you're doing.
4: Well, thank you for the encouragement, and I'm always happy to be on your program. Thank you.
1: Yep, you take care. All right, everybody, All right, that was uh, President Tony Preckwinkle. Um, you know, on the sort of tragedy of leaving people at the roadside in the cold, well, I just got to ask, like, that's not us. Why is that happening? Anyway, I'm going to let you guys answer that question. I'm going to take your uh, your questions, but I want to put one more topic on the table before I go to your questions. So bear with me, because this is really interesting. There's a young man named Charlie Kirk. I don't know if you know about him. He founded a group called Turning Point USA to attract Americans to conservative causes. He's a right winger. Um, uh, they, they have an event every year, they call it America Fest, and it's open to students aged 16 to 26. And it promises these folks a chance to hear from the nation's top leaders, you know, and to help them develop their leadership skills and activist techniques. Charlie Kirk is a repulsive huckster, but we need to pay attention because he can be counted on to show us where the Republican Party is headed. It's an ugly place. He 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 succeeded in getting nearly 20,000 young people to this year's uh, America Fest in Phoenix, which happened in December. And, you know, he promised they would hear from the nation's top leaders. Well, here's who they heard from Tucker Carlson, Don Jr., Carrie Lake and Roseanne Barr. Right. Hardly the nation's top leaders. But again, he's a huckster and a propagandist. But it's his own talk that I want to tell you about. And then I want to hear from you about it. And and there was really fascinating reporting on this by William Turton in, in, in Wired magazine that came out about this recently. Charlie Cook, he told the crowd that the country was wrong to pass the Civil Rights Act in 1964. He says the act has somehow replaced our constitution and crushed the First Amendment. Kirk is using what he thinks is a successful backlash against DEI to undo generations of progress in America. He he wants Congress to repeal the Civil Rights Act, and he argues that Title IX, which you know was uh, uh, about gender, that their rules protecting people regardless of gender somehow violate. He has a First Amendment rights, which I suppose means to be able to have hateful speech about trans kids or something. And he promises, just in time for MLK Day this week, to honor a truly great American, that he is going to go out of his way to discredit the memory of Dr. King. People in America have learned false history, he says. He wasn't a great man, and they've been, they've been sold a bunch of junk along with the Civil Rights Act. Look, here's one of the many things guys like Kirk will never understand. Dr. King is a hero, not just because of the great works he did, but because he did those works despite being, you know what, a flawed human being just like the rest of us. And the fact that any person can find the inner courage and moral clarity is the great lesson, the great lesson of a great leader. You know, he was able to bring America together on the most fabulous vision of an inclusive democracy, um, a tough vision. He didn't think it would be easy. Um, And he did it. With great moral clarity, and it doesn't matter that like any human being, he had his own flaws. He rose above them to do great things. That's what made him great. And this. Huckster, this cheap right wing fraud is taking 20,000 young Americans at the anniversary of Dr. King and saying, I bet I can double down on everybody's anxiety about DEI and undo all of a generation of civil rights. Shame. But here's the thing that's even more shameful, right? All of the young people that showed up are now part of this despicable racist movement. And all of it has been embraced by the Republicans as the future of their party. Look, it falls on us to make sure that that party has no future. We're going to take a break from the news for for, just take a break to pay for this. When we come back, I'll take your questions.
0: Edwin Eisentrath is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820.
1: Okay, everybody, uh, call in. I want to hear from you. What are you thinking about? Boy, we covered a lot of ground today. Jim, what's what are you thinking yeah. today?
6: I'm thinking about the uh, half a billion dollars recouped by the IRS from wealthy tax cheats uh, that Biden a lot of the IRS, and that's only scratching the surface. And when am going to draw the conclusion? <laughs> the Republicans must have more wealthy tax cheats than the Democrats do because they're so reluctant. To give money to the IRS to collect this errant money throughout the country. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally think tremendous. Agree with you. Yeah, and I see some estimates where uh, this it could be just a, a staggering figure if they ever you know, had full employment there and everybody was on the ball there, they and had the money to pay their employees what we yeah. can collect.
1: I just I yeah. mean ordinary I just, workers have their their taxes taken out of their paycheck. Right, the right. IRS right. workers. If, if, to the extent that the IRS workers ever get involved in their tax returns, it's to make sure they get their refund on time. Um, but right. but if it yes. right, okay. oh, think, so, yeah. so so yeah. ordinary people should want to have more IRS agents because then there won't be any trouble with the refunds. But the the rich right. people with the very fancy tax dodges have fought it, and the Republicans have fought it, and I, I'm afraid that it's part of the deal that you know is on the table to keep the government right. funding. Um, some of that IRS funding is going to go away. And that just means okay. that, you know, um, remember when Donald Trump said, ah, I can't release my taxes because they're being audited. Well, it, <laughs> yes, a, of course it was a lie. But the, but the fact is that big, complicated tax returns do take time to audit and to understand them. And, uh, and, uh, and we don't have the staff to do it. And the very, very rich people and their lawyers know that. And it's billions and billions of tax dollars that are being siphoned away as part of the division of wealth in America, this floating of money to the top.
0: Have a great weekend
6: and stay warm. This uh, we can, Edwin. Take care.
1: Well, Jim, what, again, before you go, what do you think of the NFL's decision to play the game? You know, in in, in you know, the, in, in potentially forty below wind chills. T- oh, okay. All right. Well, as I say, you can call me at 773-763-9278. And we got got a lot to talk about uh, with this election um, coming this year. We have. um, Yeah, I mean, the Turning Point USA stuff with Charlie Kirk, that right wing vile stuff that they're coming after all of civil rights. I mean, the, the baby boom generation. It's the biggest work they ever did, right that, that, that somehow in this generation we passed civil rights laws and changed the country. All that could go away that it's not going to, but that this is what they're arguing should happen. appalling, disgusting really. <clears throat> and that is the, and that is the future of the Republican Party. Wow. Or we could talk about as as Tony Preckwinkle did, Uh, A Republican Party that thinks it's okay to take people, no matter what you think of the question of immigration, that you would take human beings and ship them um, in flip flops and T-shirts to the tundra that is northern Illinois right now and drop them off somewhere in the middle of the night where they have to wait all night long in order to get warm. Are you kidding me? You know, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on that. I hope you agree with me that there's just, no matter what you think about immigration, that that is not okay. Um, or, you know, we talked about earlier in the show, we could talk about it again when you, if you want, that it's been 20 years since they won an election, really. I mean, since they won the popular vote. Um, and Democrats, you know, when a Republican wins the electoral college, but they lose the vote, We don't storm the Capitol and say we've been cheated. Heck, when we were, um, when the Supreme Court decided that it was up to them to pick between Al Gore and, uh, and George W. Bush, even though Al Gore won the popular vote and may have won the vote in Florida, they stopped the count and said, nope, we're done. George Bush is president. Democrats didn't storm the Capitol, try and burn down the country. And that wasn't from a lack of patriotism. That was uh, 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 from a respect for the rule of law. And we just, you know, organized and worked harder. That's not what's going on in the Republican side. There isn't respect for the rule of law. There isn't respect for the institutions of our government anymore. Donald Trump in court, in court, the judge said, you can talk, but hear the rules. And he said, no, I'm not abiding by those rules. And gave a speech anyway, undermining again the idea that our courts are fair. And mostly they are, although Eileen Cannon, to be blunt, um, the judge in charge of the documents case in Mar a Lago, has just punted so that that case can't be heard or won't likely be heard before the election. Um, uh, Shameful, really, behavior. We could talk about that. I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, I, I, I see it for what it is. And I hope you do, too. I hope you do, too. You see it and you know that it's wrong. That it's wrong. And the idea that in Texas, they're sending their National Guard out there to try and militarily keep the U.S. from access to the Rio Grande so that we can't do our border security job. While they're having press conferences saying, "Oh, the border, the border," they're keeping the U.S. government from the border, and that could get out of control like in a half a second. These are not the values that ordinary Americans have. Ordinary Americans want to get up, go to a hard day's work, you know, be rewarded for that work, and be able to send their kids to a school where they get a good education and a chance at a better life. What does that have to do with putting somebody on a bus? And dumping them in the tundra. What does that have to do with spending state money to block the U.S. government from access to its own border? Are you kidding me? And this isn't obvious. Well, it is obvious to most Americans. So here's my here's my plea to the Democrats um, and to all of you who are listening who are deeply afraid about this year because you're reading and you're listening to the Republicans' leading candidate talk about being a dictator. And you know what? Yeah, if he won, he would be. But he's not going to win because we're not going to let him because no one is going to rest on their backside and watch because we see this and no one wants to be a spectator because we live in a moment where what you do matters and everybody wants to matter and everybody can because what we do, what you and I and everybody listening does in these next few months Boy, that is going to have repercussions for the whole world. Um, All right, I'm sorry, I've been blathering. Jim, what do you think? Brian, what do you think?
6: Uh, Yeah, you just picked me up. Uh, I'm an independent politically, and I think the Democrats are badly mishandling the immigration issue. You know, people in the common sense middle, what we want is we want limited Controlled immigration. What we want is an orderly procedure. What we want is to keep people out of the country. They can't just bum rush the border and then we're in, and then once you're in, you get to stay. You know, we have millions of people from the Philippines and all over the world that are waiting in line doing it legally to come into the United States. But yet we let our Hispanic neighbors just pour across the border and we don't stop it. What we want is we want it limited. And see, this is the problem progressive Democrats have in almost every hot button issue. They believe in no limits, no responsibility. And that's wrong.
1: We cannot. Brian, That's really interesting. I, look, wait, let me, let me interrupt you for a second. Because I agree with you substantively that we should have borders that are controlled, that we should control our immigration, that it should not be a rush at the border, that it should all be stable and that should be controlled by our laws. But I want to know where you get the information that says that's not what Democrats want, because here's what I I
6: read a lot of stuff. I read the business media.
1: Well, does business media tell you that, that, that Joe Biden now. has asked for more money to police the border, that, that expulsions from the U.S. right now are at, and, and they were when Obama was president, too, are at an all-time high, but that there aren't enough judges and there aren't enough border control people, right. and our laws on asylum and other, and other questions about entry are old and outdated, and only Congress can fix that. That's not see, Joe Biden's Joe,
6: fault. But what Joe Biden is not saying is he's not saying I am going to limit and I'm going to restrict immigration. Why does he say that simple phrase? It's always Well, we well, got to find a what, way. We got got to find what he's a way. Done
1: because because we have we the United States has, has deported record numbers of people in the last few years, and um, it's it's got this huge backlog. So he's asked for more money for judges so they can um, uh, enforce the laws that are on the books. He's asked Congress and he's offered the Republicans in Congress to negotiate an immigration reform law that will clarify this stuff. And he's asked for millions of dollars in more border security that that the Republicans won't give him. So I get that Democrats are, are, are carrying want, the baggage the for this. But boy, this is a bipartisan problem for years.
8: OK, well, let me say this.
6: They, I know Republicans want the fight. They want the issue. But I think Republican yeah. or excuse me, the Democrats need to take a restrictionist stance and say, hey, we're not going to put up with this. We're going to control it. And then you know what I would do if I controlled the Justice Department? I would start prosecuting all the employers that have been hiring the illegal immigrants for decades. Go to the meatpacking plants. Start arresting the owners. Go to these hotels, the restaurants, the hospitals. Everybody that's hired illegal immigrants prosecute them and show America what's really going on. It's like we'd be regulated uh,
1: market. I, I, I don't disagree done. with that. I don't disagree with that either. But the money for the agents to go do that is not it can't get passed through the Republicans in the House <laughs> because right. the owners there, of those factories.
6: There's got to be a way to change the focus to control and restriction as opposed to saying, we're a welcoming society. We're a nation of immigrants. We're going to put up with this, which is what you're saying, bottom line. And I'll finish with this. You know, 60% of Americans live in paycheck to paycheck. Average yep. housing is getting more and more and more expensive. So what we see is life is getting more and more expensive for everyday people. And to let millions of people just pour into the country, I see that as downward pressure on wages and making housing even more expensive. But so we have to control it, so Democrats need to adopt the language of control and restriction instead of okay just long, I, I you hear know, you I, them I, I let them I, in
1: i I hear you you' and I think you're giving political counsel I'm just telling you the facts are that we're trying to negotiate a border language that's that's clearer and fund the uh enforcement that needs to be funded but um but that said, I, I, I get that Democrats are wearing this issue and Republicans think they can hang it on Democrats. And to some extent, they have done so successfully. Um, and your counsel is that Democrats need to change their language about it. Um, and that's interesting. And I think we need to um, take it seriously and understand that people do feel that immigration is um, a crisis at the moment. Um and it's a problem. I mean, we have a, we have bigger problems. But it's a problem. Numbers? I get it. Huh?
6: Can America take unlimited numbers of immigrants?
1: No, no country can. Um, right. And, so and we are getting to the point where about all. So no, we, it's there, and we just need we need to pass the law. I mean, about fourteen percent of Americans were born in another country. That's that's. Um, uh, that's approaching, it's not quite, but it's approaching our all-time high, which was in the 1890s. And after that time, in the 1890s and the early 1920s, it, you know, all those immigrants were from, most of those immigrants were from Europe, but people, you know, had the same kind of reaction. They're like, oh, well, we don't like those Italians, or we don't like those Irish, or we like, if people are different, and people behave, like, I don't have any patience for that, but I understand it, and we are at the we are at the point where that where the numbers of foreign-borns are starting to be um, uh, sort of socially unsustainable. Uh, the business community, it's good for business. Um, and it's actually probably good for our economy, but we can't sustain it. We need to have the rule of law at our border like we need to have it everywhere else. And our existing laws are not up to the challenge. We need to change them. I'm right there with that. We need to have laws that fit the purpose of the moment, not laws that are 40 years old in a different era when humans didn't migrate. And we need better enforcement. And that's not just the the force on the border, that's in the courts. And by the way, the courts were overwhelmed when Donald Trump got rid of immigration judges and doubled their caseload and then ordered them to expel everybody regardless of the rule. So they had to actually have full hearings. So in effect, they got completely overwhelmed and swamped and are underwater and haven't caught up. So sometimes you just have to know how government works in order to get things done. Anyway, long answer to say, you've this. identified a problem I, I and en- I get it.
6: I enjoy your show, Edwin. You do a really good job. You have on a lot of very high quality guests. I just see the immigration issue is being handled badly by Democrats. It seems like they just want to play racial identity politics and court the Hispanic vote. And I think that's blowing up in their faces because a lot of Hispanics are culturally conservative. A lot of them come from countries that have a socialist past. And so they're not down with the socialist arguments on everything. So
1: it, it's yeah. not. Well, you're not enough. hearing one from me. The way the big you're definitely not hearing a socialist argument from me. I get it. I get it. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, thank you for calling. I appreciate thank it. I appreciate your listening and being part of this conversation. Um, Ted, you're next.
6: Yeah, thank you so much, Edwin. All right, here. And I don't know why I've, not, I've heard anybody not see this. At the very highest level, I'll call them the Illuminati because we had fun with that at one time. At the highest level, those people see us competing economically against countries with a billion-plus people, China and India. So no matter what solutions you guys come up with, uh, th- what's going to happen is you're going to see continued fights against abortion, and you're going to see continued allowing immigrants in, no matter what the lip service is, because those at the highest level believe we need more people here to work and compete with our competitors. Who have?
1: I think I lost you. I lost Ted, um, but his 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 point was that the. Leaders in the business community, I think, want the workers. Um, um, and you know what? A big, but we need to grow as America. We can do that in all kinds of ways. Immigration is one way, but I, um, controlling it is, uh, it's got to not seem lawless or Americans will revolt. Um, but I don't know where he went, so let's go to Dave. Hey, Alan. Welcome Hi, back. There. Thank you.
5: Hey, I'm, uh, I'm uh, Today, that uh, reading the story, President Joe Biden said that the U.S. does not support the independence of Taiwan. After Taiwanese voters rebuffed China and gave the ruling party a third presidential term. And um, kind of a giant, you know, stick in the eye to mainland. And this presidential candidate, Larry ching whatever, it came to power strongly rejecting Chinese pressure to spurn him, and the um, pledge to both stand up to Beijing and seek talks, and President Mm -hmm. Biden said, we do not support independence." when asked for a reaction. Now, that's kind of confusing, because on one hand, he's talking about, you know, (laughs) if the mainland went to go and take control of it, we would be there for them.
1: Dave, I am very glad you raised this issue. um, The issue of Taiwan is potentially the most dangerous issue on the planet Mm -hmm. right now. It's 20 million people in a democracy, a vibrant democracy. Um, Historically, uh, both the government in Taiwan and the government in China have said they are one country. And it has been American policy for decades um, to be ambiguous about this to say, and this isn't just Biden, this has been American policy, to say we do not support the independence of Taiwan. We also do not support the, a military solution to this problem, that this is a problem that has to be dealt with peacefully between the Taiwanese people and the people in the mainland. That's our position. We are not pushing in independent Taiwan. We have not ever done that. We, we, we have not ever well, done. In fact, we, we have maintained this fiction that it is one country that has these two systems and that we hope that they will peacefully um, resolve it um, because they're two different governments right now.
5: Right. So like, uh, Korea, right we, like Korea, we've said we would be there if the North came across the 38th parallel. And we've said in the past that if uh, the mainland came, we would be there to protect
1: no, we Taiwan. don't have a treaty no. to go to war for Taiwan. Not we not. with Taiwan, but we, we have
5: said it more than one time. On, on the
1: we on have the- we've we've definitely given them arms, oh. and we haven't we have plans to give them more means to defend themselves from a military invasion for sure, um, mm. um uh, and to make a military invasion in, enormously painful, um, if that's what China wants. But China has also said, look, they 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 had hoped that they could. Um, coerce or otherwise um, get uh, you know and they they, they do this it's every once in a while their relations with, with Taiwan gets better and then it gets worse then the Taiwanese saw what they did to Hong Kong and they went yeah that's not going to be us right so um, uh, we can't be in a position of saying we could be but I don't think we should I agree with the American mm-hmm. position on this we shouldn't if we just said we believe that Taiwan needs to be an independent country. Um, that would be a change, a big change in American policy, and make um, enormous, an enormously complicated world even more complicated because our relationship with China would go completely in the tank.
5: You recall about a year or so ago when Nancy Pelosi went over visiting, just before or just after, they were buzzing the, the Taiwanese airspace and stuff with their planes, you know, sorties out. Yeah. You know, acting
1: yeah. real aggressive and stuff. And, you know, that's... Well, it's China's... Y- y- yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, Dave, unification is is mainland China's, is the, is the Chinese Communist Party's, one of their top priorities, is reunifying, making it one country and ruling over Taiwan. Um, yeah. And the United States has not said they're independent, but it's said you can't, it may be your top priority, but it's our position, you can't, you can't make that happen militarily. So, you figure yeah. out another way to make nice to them, and maybe they will agree with you. And it's been yeah. years and that then, hasn't happened, you know. Yeah. And then, but I think every time China that, pushes um, them, it, it makes yeah. them feel more independent.
5: And then we got that, you know, what's going on in the Red Sea, and all of this stuff going on now, and you know, it's kind of like the old Paul Simon song, it's sliding away. We're slowly getting stuck in there, you know, between, you know, Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. You know, it's,
1: I don't know. It's. Yeah. I know it was our top priority to see that this war did not widen into a bigger regional conflict. And it has widened it a is. little bit. It has definitely yeah. widened a little bit. And, um, but we have like, You know, our economy and the and frankly, Europe's economy and a bunch of our allies economy depends on free, you know, on the ability to ship through the Red Sea to go through the Suez Canal rather than to take a boat all the way around Africa. I mean, it's some enormous percent of all the goods in the world go through that canal. And, and the entire, yes. you know, m- most of the economy of Egypt. I mean, it would just the chaos that would ensue if we had to shut the Red Sea is almost unimaginable, right? So it's in everybody's interest right, so, to keep well, that open. And we told them, well, we said, well, told well, the Biden American said, don't do so, it. So, but, yeah. I'm, look, I'm American glad American that Biden is keeping area. the red line. Oh. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, keeping anyway, his promise, tough. right? He said, "Don't well, do it. I'm warning you. Don't get involved in this fight." And the Houthis didn't listen to that warning, time and again. And then they, they went made, after American yeah. ships, and the president yep. is defending them. I'm I'm a hundred percent down with it. I know my most progressive friends are concerned about that, um, and the most well, Biden-hating ones. They had ones are warning people.
5: that these Houthis had fired a ballistic missile toward the, you know, so they're I don't know you know we're and. They said, you know, we went to 30 sites. I believe we hit 60 sites, from what I read. You know, and
1: uh, yeah, two nights it, of two yeah. nights of because you know, instead of negotiating yeah. with them after after this, we're just going to degrade their capacity to cause chaos. That's yeah. But,
5: but anyway, well, listen, let me clear so you can get some other people. But uh, thank you, listen, I really I appreciate the call, entertaining, entertaining my conversation, but good
1: talking to you. You bet. Guys. You bet.
8: Uh Roosevelt. Double E, thank you for taking my call, my friend. How have you been? Welcome back.
1: Thank you. I've been good. I've been good. Listen, a Listen.
8: guy that said that the Democrats are not handling this, this wasn't created by the Democrats. It was created by two main uh, states that are Republican uh, governors. What does Florida have to do with the border? And why would Florida send to Martha's Vineyard migrants? California and all the other places where he sent them talking about the why would Abbott send migrants to Chicago? Very simple because here, I just looked it up. I do remember Trump getting, getting the endorsement of uh, Abbott. I do remember Trump going to Texas. Let's see, where did I see that? Um, back in 2019, no, wait, Where is this here? Hold on. Yeah. So he visited Texas and he got the endorsement. Now, what what do you think they were talking about? Do you think they were talking about the weather? You think they were talking about they were talking about setting up a plan so that uh, uh, Abbott lets the floodgates open and sends the migrants over here. And as recent as last week, when he got out of the courtroom, Trump, I'm talking about, he said that Biden is handling this horribly. So it's a kabuki theater. It's, it, it, it's, it's made up of Republicans. How come you didn't tell them that? that? That made me mad what that guy was saying. Because this problem wasn't created. Chicago never had a problem with migrants. Because we, as Illinois, don't have a border with Mexico. This is all created by Republicans. To, to do what? To make Chicago look bad. To make Illinois look bad. Where is Biden running from? Where is the Democratic Convention going to be? In Chicago. Nobody sees that?
1: Everybody sees it.
8: And Tony Freckwinkle talked that? about that. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, Tony look. Freckwinkle, now I'm talking about guys like that that just called. And then he says that, uh, hey, listen, I'm a Mexican-American, born in Mexico, U.S. citizen. But Mexicans are not like Venezuelans. Cubans are not like Mexicans. Venezuelans are not like Mexicans. We're not monolithic. We don't all vote for, for Democrats.
1: No, We have different No, Latin America is enormously said. diverse. Yes. Exactly,
8: but that's what the guy said. Basically, he said that the Latino, I mean, uh, uh, Hispanics are this, Hispanics are that. No, they're not. Because look at Florida. You have Cuban Americans still voting for those idiots down in Florida. <laughs> look at look at Texas.
1: Why is Texas Republican? Yeah. I, I oh, get it. Boy, listen, I get it. It's so true that that people are diverse, and the people who are coming from from the South are diverse with bring bring different history, different ideas, different food, different uh, politics. All, yeah. all of that's true. But look, immigration. My let's let's not even call it immigration because that, that, that's U.S. focused migration around the planet. Is an enormous and complicated issue uh, for the whole world. There, I mean, climate change is pushing people, poverty is pushing people, war is pushing people, and there and and you know there are a lot of humans on this planet and they're on the move. And um, you know, there like it's chaos in parts of Asia, it's chaos in parts of Europe, and it's chaos in parts of North America as people try it and, and move here. We we are going to do our 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 level best, I hope, to change the laws, the laws so that we can not have chaos so that we can so that so that when we decide so that we can be um, so that we can manage the migration as it comes to America in a way that makes sense for us. But the Republicans will not give us a bill. They won't do it because they want the issue through the election. And they won't even fund border patrols. Hey, listen! I got a better one than that. Remember
8: when Obama was playing golf with John Boehner? Remember when there was going to be a bipartisan immigration reform, and John Boehner didn't bring it up to vote? Yeah, Yeah. they killed it. So when you so when you say that the Democrats are not handling this right, who's handling that? Who's not handling that right? And look, as recent as um, what? Uh, well, no, I'm going to take it back. 1966, the Cuban Act. This is the same thing. Where are those uh, so-called defenders of of human rights, such as uh, Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, because their parents and grandparents went through this. We've seen this before in our history. It's no different between Venezuela and Cuba because they're both dictatorships. But now... Because as Venezuelans, remember when Obama was there and all these uh, guys like Cruz and and Rubio would say that, uh, oh, and Maduro and all this and that and and Venezuela? You don't hear them saying anything and sticking up for their fellow Venezuelan uh, brothers. You don't hear a peep from them. But you know what you hear in Spanish and in English? That there's a crisis at the border. Crisis created by Republicans. And you know, whenever there's a Democratic pres- president, there's always a crisis. Now, let's skip to let's go forward to what Trump wants to do. He wants to round them up and put them in uh, camps. What about that? And what about the fact they wants to throw bombs in Mexico to to uh, to battle the, the, the cartels? What about that? Is that OK? All these okay. things are connected. And what about the, the killings that are in Mexico with American weapons? What about that? The torture. These cartels in Mexico are are strong in Mexico and terrorize little towns and do it with American weapons. I'm not talking about a gun. I'm talking about the AR-15. So all that is connected. And so don't you I... think that they're being terrorized in Mexico and Latin America, especially Central America? And what about, I hear a lot about what about. What about Reagan and what he did? I ran Contra. You didn't think that that made an effect on Central America, an impact on poor people when he supported dictators, drug drug dealers murderers? Okay, that's it. I spoke I spoke too not, much. Listen, you
1: think I, about I, 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 I appreciated I appreciate your going through uh, this history. We what the the, board, the 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 migrant problem is a problem and it's a problem that that is hard to solve in when it is being used as a political cudgel by the republicans and as you heard this other caller he like the facts aren't the problem he's upset that he doesn't hear democrats say we need to close the border and we need to have a a, a slower managed process or somebody else called and then hung up in the middle um you know, or got cut off who was saying you know, the secret leaders of the country want to have more immigrants to depress wages and you know, things like that. Um the, America should grow. It should grow from our own kids and from immigrants, but in a in a way that is sustainable for the society. Period. And we should do our share, but we should do our share. We should not um be uh uh destabilized in any way, and and we aren't being destabilized despite the Republican rhetoric. But at 14% of foreign born, it's a lot for our country to manage. It creates this opportunity for all of this. Um, I can't say that in the radio for all of this um, um, preening at the border that Republicans are doing. So we need order. We need a new law. Congress has to do that. Republicans have to get on board. Democrats have offered to negotiate and they have said only if we take 20 million people and put them in concentration camps and send them elsewhere. And that is not what we do in a democracy. Anyway, Roosevelt, you've had the last word again. Thank you for calling. Hey, everybody. I will talk to you again next week. Thank you for your time today.